There's underground civilizations on this earth who are very advanced. They've got a whole world down there that we don't know anything about. And a lot of people don't even want to believe that. But they have their own sun, they have their own oceans, they have everything underneath the planet. But we were taught that it's really hot inside, it's a molten iron, the center of the earth, and the further down you go, the hotter it gets, so how could anybody live down there? Nah, it's not possible, it's all a fairy tale, you see. But if you want to believe that, what our scientists know is only a smidgen of the totality of what knowledge exists. Welcome to part two of the webinar. So we have a lot to get into tonight like a lot. <laughs> and we don't want to waste any time because we could be here for over two and a half hours, potentially. I recommend everyone who is taking this stuff seriously, grab a notebook and a pen. And you know, there's going to be a lot of references, a lot of things we're going to be covering that we don't get to spend enough time on. So if you want to take notes, I recommend doing that. We will provide some links and stuff like we did with the last one. But this is one of those subjects, just like all the other ones that it's so involved. There are there's so much information about Hollow Earth and the Agartha network dating all the way back to the 1500s. The amount of information that we found, like there's it's impossible to include in a webinar, just like everything. But I think you're gonna appreciate what we put together. It's a it's an epic <laughs> uh presentation that we put together here. So we hope you guys enjoy. All right, guys, so here we go. We're going to let Dolores Cannon, so I apologize for all of the uh, technical difficulties, but we're going to let Dolores Cannon uh, kind of get us in the mood for the inner earth and the hollow earth. Just let your imagination run wild during this because we are getting into some wild stuff, some stuff that shouldn't exist, but it does according to our research. And I'm really excited to do this. Oh, it so definitely let's... does. Right. Okay, here we go. Well, whenever Atlantis went down, a lot of them, some of them went to Egypt and what survivors and to other places, but some of them went underground. And there's an entire cities all throughout. There's all kinds of tunnels and transportation systems that link them all together. Some of the trains and things down there can go 3,000 miles an hour to link the two the cities together. There's a, like a sun inside the earth that lights everything. So they have light, they have lakes, they have water, they have everything they need. And there's animals down there that do not exist on the surface of the earth. They have uh, live computers, if you want to say that. This is in my second volume of the Convoluted Universe. It talks about the underground cities. They have computers that we can't even approach that can create and do anything they want. And the people are so advanced, they have no desire to come to the surface. They have everything they need down there. They've been down there for thousands and thousands of years. And they're much more advanced than we are because there's no wars, there's no violence. But yeah, there's civilizations under the surface of the earth. And people say, well, it can't be. There's only the magma. It's not. Okay, so here we go. So I was just at the Denver airport. I uh, just came back from Colorado and California. I was on a trip with Tony Rodriguez and I uh, was had some healing work done in Colorado, but they have new signs up at Denver, um, different than the old ones. Apologize for the noise. It takes really big drills to get to the underworld. And they have a reptilian with a jackhammer. It's hilarious. Uh, this stuff's right in your face, as always. 
And then this one's really interesting. Forgive the mess. Building secret underground tunnels can get quite untidy. But the caution sign looks like a guy falling into a portal. In my opinion, what does it look like to you, Aaron? It definitely does. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's just right in your face. People walk by this and they write it off as a joke. We've, we didn't cover Denver in the first part, which we could have easily done a whole slideshow just on the Denver airport and the underground there. And I just figured it would be fun to throw these in there. Um, these were the only two I saw, but there's a major construction project going on. And it's all right in your face, as always. And then, so this is something I wanted to include in the first part, but I didn't get a chance to because uh, I forgot. So uh, so whenever, if you guys know the story about Larry trying to recruit me to go to Mars and that whole crazy time in my life, one of the things he told me was that Bussin Quarry, which is a quarry five minutes away from my house, literally five minutes, um, he told me that under Bussin Quarry is actually one of the underground cities where the elites frequent and celebrities frequent. And I guess that would be an alternative to city. So I went online and I just took some pictures of the quarry and the underground. And as the universe would have it today, I ran into my friend's dad, who I haven't seen in years, who works at Bussin Quarry. He's worked there his whole life and he retires in two years. And I asked him, I said, so how deep underground does it go there? I was like, do you still work there? He's like, oh, yeah, two more years. I retire. So like, how deep underground does it go? And he, you know, he he said it didn't go that far, but he goes, there's a lot of businesses that have moved in down there. And he told me how I could drive through it. He goes, you can drive through it. I said, I've tried to go. He goes, there's gates that say stop, do not enter. He goes, oh, just ignore it. And if anybody stops you, um, just tell them you know me. And he said, just go through and the road's going to fork. Go down to the right. It looks like you can't go that way, but you can just drive down through there. Just act like you're a delivery driver or something. And that'll take you to the underground part. So I know what I'm going to be doing this week.
But apparently there's underground city underneath of this that even he's not aware of. But who knows if that's really true or not. But it's just something I found very interesting because it's only five minutes away from my house. Yeah, I, I don't doubt that at all. I mean, that's it makes sense that they would put an underground base or on something underground underneath a quarry where they're already digging, um, you know, <laughs> and like normal people aren't just going to like walk around there, you know, and go there. Like it's, right. it totally makes sense. They would put it underneath a quarry. Yeah. That's, and it's called yeah. bussing underground. Like that's what right. that part, that's called. <laughs> so. Right. Right. Okay. And this is a slide from the first, from the first webinar, our first part, but I, we're just going to read it again because uh, Aaron, you just bought this book. Did you read it yet? I did not yet. I mean, other than if you count the back cover and like the very first page. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to read this again because it just kind of, you know, summarizes everything we're going to be covering. That is um, the back cover, by the way. Yeah. In there. The world inside for thousands of years, many thinkers have believed in the existence of another world hidden from our eyes yet beneath our very feet. Among the believers in the other worlds hidden below the surface of our planet have been world-famous mystics, highly placed religious and scientific authorities, and infamous meddlers with the occult like Adolf Hitler. Hitler's powerful fuel society was dedicated to the search for the world inside the hollow earth, which we'll get into in a little bit. Many of mankind's most ancient myths and legends, including the ideas of a physical hell, are based on the existence of just such subterranean worlds. But is there any truth to the beliefs? This hollow earth penetrates the veil of ancient secrecy to explode the fables and reveal the astonishing truth. And Aaron, I'll let you read this next slide. This is from the beginning of the book. Yeah. The Hidden Kingdom. According to Buddhist doctrine, Agartha is a subterranean land located deep within the center of our planet Earth. The Buddhists believe that millions of people live within this underground paradise. Their lives and destinies are directed by an all-powerful and all-wise ruler who is known to them as the king of the world. The Buddhist religion is one of the oldest and most sophisticated in the world. So is the story of Agartha nothing more than fable, or is there truth behind the legend? Many people of different religions have strongly believed in a world within our world. Today, for example, many respected seekers after truth firmly maintain that the lost civilization of Atlantis lives on beneath the Earth's surface. How many of these subterranean worlds really exist? The hollow earth theory is a mind-shattering proposal that there are gigantic holes at the north and south poles. These polar openings lead to a vast, unknown world inside the center of the earth. Some believers also claim the earth is honeycombed with a vast network of subterranean tunnels that lead down to the inner world. If that isn't enough to boggle your mind, hollow earth enthusiasts declare that these interior lands are inhabited by giants, fairies, the wee people, demonic animal men, or a race of gentle, advanced people. Depending on who you're talking to, these benign inhabitants inside the Earth are said to be the survivors of Atlantis, Lemuria, or an unknown race. Certain ufologists have theorized that flying saucers originate from the hollow Earth, piloted by intraterrestrials from these subterranean worlds. And yeah, we're going to keep it. Uh, the Buddhist, Agartha, Atlantis, these things are going to be coming up uh, quite often throughout this webinar, um, and in particular Atlantis. So... Just take note of that as we move forward, because there's a lot of interesting stuff. Well, we Hindu, the Hindu religion also talks about right the same thing, and well, Buddhism is an offshoot of Hinduism, so it makes sense. So, 
We just uploaded the Brooks Agnew talk from our conference onto our Patreon. A lot of you guys might have already noticed that. The reason we did that is because his entire webinar is based on proving that the earth is hollow. Um, beyond a shadow of a doubt with science that you just irrefutable proof, in my opinion, um, that it's not only hollow, that it is a sphere. And if you guys want to watch that presentation, which I highly recommend, uh, you can do that on the Patreon. We uploaded that for you guys um, because it corroborates a lot of what we're trying to explain here. And one of the things he covers is that a massive ocean dis was discovered beneath the Earth's crust containing more water than the surface. Technically, it's beneath our ocean. So beneath the ocean, the seabed floor um, is another ocean. And we have scientific data to back this up. This isn't a theory at this point. And the underwater rivers, which appear to be some other type of water that has a different density that you can actually swim into. It's it's literally a different uh, type of water, I guess. I don't know what it is, but we have underwater rivers that have been discovered as well. Pre-Jurassic Ocean discovered near the Earth's core. And something else that Brooks Agnew covers is the Aurora Borealis potentially being from created from inside the planet and not from anything else. And the evidence backs that up. But this is from a book from 19 or 1692. Uh, perhaps some of the most bizarre scientific theories ever considered were those concerning the possibility that the Earth was hollow. One of the earliest of these was proposed in 1692 by Edmund Haley. Edmund Haley was a brilliant English astronomer whose mathematical calculations pinpointed the return of the comet that bears his name. Haley was fascinated by the Earth's magnetic field. He noticed the direction of the field varied slightly over time, and the only way he could account for this was there existed not one, but several magnetic fields. Haley came to the belief that the Earth was hollow, and within it was a second sphere with another field. In fact, to account for all the variations in the field, Haley finally proposed that the Earth was composed of some four spheres, each nestled inside another. Haley also suggested that the interior of the Earth was populated with life and lit by a luminous atmosphere. He thought the aurora borealis or the northern lights was caused by the escape of this gas through a thin crust at the poles. So think about that. This is in 1692. They're already contemplating that the aurora borealis was coming from inside the planet. And now today in 2023, Brooks Agnew proves it in his research and him and multiple scientists have teamed up and it's very, I mean, it's compelling that the Aurora Borealis is created from some sort of sun that's inside our planet. But as you guys see, this stuff is not new. This was in 1692. And then Jack Doubleday, we also just uploaded his presentation and he talks about the expanding earth and terraforming Terra, which is a really interesting theory. But um, just to, just to kind of, Whoever this webinar might reach, just to please any skeptics that it might reach, we'll just kind of cover this briefly. Um, Pangea, we all, we've all heard of Pangea. The only way that theory works is if you shrink the Earth. That's the only way they all fit together like a puzzle piece. So if that's the case, if we want to believe in Pangea, we have to believe that our planet was smaller, was much smaller at one point, and it is continuously expanding. Aaron, did you want to add anything to this? You were saying something earlier about yeah. this. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense that that because they want to say Pangaea was the continents that were all once one continent, but 
then it's like, okay, well, they're all just in one random spot on the planet and the rest is what that doesn't really make any sense to me. It makes way more sense that the planet was smaller and then as it expanded the, so the water, water is being generated from somewhere inside the planet, which is inner earth most likely. And there's, as we will learn, there's seas and oceans on, inside the earth that there's actually way more water inside the planet than there is on the surface apparently. And it's being generated from inside the planet and the planet's expanding from inside out. So, so as it grows, there becomes more and more water, the planet gets bigger, and then the continents slowly over time separate into what we have now. Right. And then what shape is our planet? Is it a square, the squirth, squirth. <laughs> a circle, an oval, a flat earth, a donut? Uh, there's crazy theories online about all of them. Um, but based on based strictly on the Earth's magnetosphere, magnetosphere, a sphere, it's not a magnetosphere. Uh, yeah. <laughs> based magnetis on the flat. yeah, based on the magnetosphere, um, the shape of the magnetosphere is a pair, is a pear shape. And if it if the planet were round, they predict or they speculate that the magnetosphere would be round, but it's not. It's in the shape of a pear. So that leads them to conclude that our Earth is shaped something like this. Um, this would be a more accurate depiction of our planet than just a round ball. Now that's based strictly on the magnetosphere data. And they're just basically tracing the shape of the magnetosphere. So moving on. Okay. So this photograph was taken by the SS7 satellite on November 23rd, 1968. And there is almost no cloud cover. The ice fields on the surface can be observed and the hole at the North Pole can clearly be seen. But there are there is a skeptic explanation for this. And that is right here. Uh, one believer did seize on a NASA photograph showing a black hole at the North Pole, and it called it proof of an entrance to a hollow Earth. As it turned out, the photo was actually a composite of several pictures taken over 24 hours so that all the sections were seen in daylight, and the black hole at the top was the portion of the Arctic Circle never illuminated during the day over the winter months, which, that's a stretch. Yeah, no. That, <laughs> that but, but that is their explanation for the whole, that's science's explanation for the, yeah. the whole in this photo. They always have to have an explanation, no matter and how I think, stupid yeah. it is. And I believe the next slide is a video, a quick video talking about this poll from a mini documentary that Aaron found, which is actually really good. It is really On November 23rd, 1968, the American spacecraft SS-7 took several pictures of the North Pole in the complete absence of clouds, and a giant black hole is clearly visible on them. The question arises, why has the find not yet been investigated? Moreover, at the moment, any flights over the North Pole, including research satellites, are prohibited. The official version says that these bans are precautionary measures because gravity is weak at the poles, so the force of gravity is unable to hold flying vehicles. But likely, they're just hiding something from the public. Remember how aggressively Congress reacted to Byrd's attempts to discuss his fateful flight? So what was so unusual about what he saw at the North Pole? And we will be getting into that. 
Okay, so Daniel Sala, if you guys remember this episode, it was one of my favorite episodes. We really uh, didn't, we covered the Hollow Earth extensively in this episode. And one of the books that he brought to our awareness, which I was completely unaware of at the time, was Genesis for the New Space Age. The secret development of the round wing plane, the extraterrestrials inside the Earth, and the arrival of the outer terrestrials, 1980. And I don't know, I couldn't actually find this book online. I didn't look very hard, but this is the PDF that he sent me, and that's where this is from. And uh, Vanishing Germans Discovery the Mystery of the Ages. So this book talks about 500 warrior colonists who left Germany in the 16th century and were presumed to have perished 4,000 miles up the Amazon River. The existence of those ancient adventurers was forgotten. Allied agents searching for Hitler's lost minions in the late 1940s unknowingly found descendants of the 16th century colonists whose current presence in that hemisphere actually changed the outcome of World War II. And astounding revelations still kept hidden from the press and public. But I share this because I want to, or I want you to understand that this adventure began in 1572. So in 1572, 500 colonists left Germany in the 16th century and they disappeared. And what ended up happening to them is astounding. So a documented story of this adventure was recorded in diary form on the ship's log, which the group saved. So this is information from a ship's log that was recovered. The hardships were endured by the German colonists for three generations. So basically what happened is they went underground and it in three generations later, they came out what they thought was the other side of the planet, but they ended up coming out in 1647 into the hollow earth. At that time, these colonists were a lost civilization. As a group, they would never return to the surface, hopelessly, but with an instinctive urge for survival, they surrendered their old ties to Germany and took on a new identity, but the cultural, linguistic, and religious beliefs from their homeland remained strong. These assets would carefully preserve and record for their children as they wandered into tunnels and adapted to lifestyle change. Then on the 75th year, the, their scouting parties broke out into the promised land. Merging through a rock opening, the advanced party looked about in wonder. All of them had been born inside the Earth's mantle and had been raised to believe there was another world. As the first guides looked about, they beheld unending sky, trees, and rolling land. But more fascinating, everything including themselves was bathed in light from a faint man-made orb that hung in a real sky. Their arrival inside the Earth's rock mantle was at a midway point below today's countries of New Zealand and Australia. The Germans cheered, they prayed, and they laughed, for they thought they had arrived back on the outside of the world again. Hurrying inside the tunnel, they told of this new wonder they had discovered. More jubilant Germans from the tunnel system emerged. Sometime later, contact was made with the occupants of this new land, who advised the German explorers that they had descended to the inside of the Earth, where hundreds of millions of peaceful people lived, who shunned surface dwellers. The new Atlanteans, which were which they were called, moved through the air in magical silent round-winged craft and drove four-wheeled vehicles without horses or oxen. These people had an advanced civilization which the amazed Germans recognized was hundreds of years ahead of the surface civilization their fathers had left years before. Also amazing to the Germans, the new Atlanteans had an ageless longevity span with no noticeable traces of old age in their bodies no ancient furrows in their facial features and no senility in their mannerisms. What was missing was the presence of old people, the Germans quickly noted. 
So yeah, they basically don't age. So basically, and there's a lot more to this story, like a lot more there's, and it's profound. So um, that book is called the Genesis for the new space age. And I will include that PDF in the description after this is over. If anyone wants to read it, it's an incredible story about what, what they go through to even discover the inside of the earth and the primitive beings that they ran into while they were tunneling while they were living under the earth. So if they came back to the surface, they were getting attacked by the the tribes in the Amazon. So that wasn't an option. They were outnumbered. And and they knew that they fled into this cave. So their only option was to start living underground. And they kept exploring this tunnel network for over three generations. And they finally broke through into this center of the earth. And it's an incredible story. This was in 1600s, guys. They started in 1500s and ended up there in the 1600s. Um, This is another book that Daniel Sala shared with me, and it's only written in German. So, uh, and it's not even translated. There's only a German version available, but a guy did read this book and write an article about it. And there's some incredible information about uh, a Catholic church cover-up. And this is the uh, this is the website, False History, and this is the article, Trade with Subterranean People in the Middle Ages. So this is from the article. I've only read the first chapter of Geheim Unterwelt, the name of the book, um, so far, but that was enough to inspire this article. In their books, the authors have proven that prior to 1580, human beings were engaged in trade and business with subterranean beings using a worldwide network of tunnels between 1550 and 1590, the Catholic Church ordered all entrances to caves and tunnels sealed and forbid dealings with the underground people. They were closed by official decree. Again, I want you guys to take note of these dates. We're still in the 1500s here. I also knew of many researchers who had discovered subterranean caverns and the tunnels that connect them, But I didn't know that in some parts of the world, there were legal documents, not only on the ceiling of the holes, but formal business records and property records preserved from the Middle Ages dealing with relations to the subterranean world. That's much more tangible than the mythology I had used. I previously said the ceiling and destruction of tunnels happened thousands of years ago. That may be true, but I now understand that a worldwide ceiling also took place as recent as 14 generations ago. As it turns out, there are many families that have documents of business dealings and events ranging back 14 generations and more. That's profound. If we have we have documents that the Catholic Church ordered all the entrances and caves and tunnels to be sealed, which if you look at this picture here to the left, um, it's a subway system in New York, but you can see those old archways. This was, according to the article, part of this all led to an underground network. And these, this is a perfect example of them sealed up and painted black. And that's just in the New York subway. So we have a mass underground. They, they, for some reason, the Catholic Church did not want us dealing with the subterranean people. I wonder why. And then this on the left is a is one of the documents. And he says, I took a picture of one of several pieces of evidence from the book. Heinrich and Ingrid Kusch have used documents by the Australian royal family worm, 
which are stored at the Royal Archives in Vienna. This one is dated to 1592. Do you want to read that part, Aaron? Sure. This is what the document says, basically. The text says that there was a mineral prospector, Strahler, by the name of Arbogast, who discovered a tunnel at an Austrian town called Kalwang. The town is still there today. He promptly made contact with a subterranean tribe called Common. Soon thereafter, he began a mutually useful business trade with the Common. But the church outlawed business relations with subterranean folk because they were worried about the welfare of the general public and because of certain remarkable events. The authors found tons of corroborating information from around that time. A document from the year 1580 shows that the church ordered the filling of holes, caves, and tunnels below the town of Klosterneuburg, Austria, according to the author. These had been built thousands of years ago. The church ordered the ceilings to be double cemented and flooded just to make sure nobody ever crept up from below again. These works were to be overseen by guards and civilians to be kept far away. So there you have it. Our ancestors were well aware of these underground civilizations and they sealed off the entrances and cut off our contact with them so they can what push their narrative the entrance to the inner earth is at the poles the inner earth is a real physical place with suns and rivers and oceans where real people are living there was trade between the inner earth people and the people above the trade agreement was violated it was violated by the humans it kicked off the church shut down all the tunnels that were leading to the inner earth and there's documentation that proves that okay the coming race now we're in 1871 still way back in 1871 this book was written it was narrated by an american who stumbles on an underground race descended from the ancient aryans that's harnessed a source of infinite power called the vril um, the Coming Race is a novel by Edward Bulwer-Lytton, published anonymously in 1871. It has been also published as Vril, The Power of the Coming Race. Some readers have believed the account of a superior subterranean master race and the energy form called a Vril, and many accepted the book as based on the occult truth. But it's important to understand this because the Germans were, they were uh, obsessed with finding this underground race as that book, that slide Aaron mentioned earlier from the book, The Hollow Earth. And this is from a different book called The Hollow Earth. It was written in 1964 by Dr. R.W. Bernard. And he talks about the coming race. He said, in his book, The Coming Race, Bulwer-Lytton describes a subterranean civilization far in advance of our own, which has existed in a large cavity in the earth, connected with the surface by a tunnel. This immense cavity was illuminated by a strange light, which did not require lamps to produce it, but it appeared to result from an electrification of the atmosphere. This light supported plant life and enabled the subterranean people to grow their foods. The inhabitants of this utopia described by Lytton were vegetarians. They had certain apparatuses by which instead of walking, they flew. They were free from disease and had perfect social organizations so that each received what he needed without exploitation of one by another. It is claimed that the Earth's crust is honeycombed by a network of tunnels passing under the ocean from continent to continent and leading to subterranean cities in large cavities in the Earth. These tunnels were especially abundant in South America, especially under Brazil, which was the chief center of the Atlantean colonization. 
So I want you guys to take note of that. Brazil and the chief center of the Atlantean colonization, because we found some other information to corroborate this. Uh, most famous of these tunnels is the roadway of the Incas, which stretches for several hundred miles south of Lima, Peru, and passes under Cusco, Tijuanaco, and the three peaks proceeding to the Atacambo Desert. Another branch opens in Africa, Chile, visited by Madame Blavatsky. Okay, so this is from a book that we're going to reference later. This book isn't even published in English. Um, there's only two. I don't know if Aaron, did you read any of this yet? Uh, not yet, other than uh, what you sent me. So this book, um, it was published in 2008 in Spanish, and there's been a revised version in 2010, but it's only in, in Spanish. It's not in English yet. Uh, my friend Nikki is friends with the author, and this man went on, it took him seven expeditions over a decade until he finally gained access to this Lumerian outpost that essentially exists in another dimension. But my friend actually knows this guy and she's heard this story firsthand from him and he's written this book. It's not even out. And there's only two English speaking people that have read this book in its entirety. And that would be me and, her, and my friend. So while he was in this dimension with the Atlanteans, they told him this. Thanks to the knowledge passed to us by our Lumerian forefathers, we can pass easily into the third dimension, become visible and tangible for the Arios, and hide ourselves at will. Manoa is the capital of the Atlantis Empire. The plains, the jungles of Colombia, Brazil, Venezuela, and Peru is our territory. The plains are lands of promise that are reserved for the future. It's a selected location. The Atlantean territory has physical signs that mark it, ornate giant hieroglyphs that can be seen from the air in the third dimension on giant rocks of the Andes, uh, Orinoquia, the Amazonia, in the desert of the south of the continent, and on the shores of the Pacific Ocean. Those landmarks act like boundaries of our territory. So think about that. The Nazca lines, that's what the Nazca lines actually are, the, the mystery solved, if this is true. Um, they act as boundaries for the Atlantean territory. And according to this book in that area, and according to the last slide, information in the coming race talks about Peru, that area being the central, the center point for the Atlantean civilization. And whatever these hieroglyphs are actually serving, whatever purpose they're serving in the third dimension, they, they act as more of an energetic boundary for the territory. There also exists a connection between the Atlantic and Pacific oceans through the interior of the earth. We have a long relationship with the indigenous cultures that are remnants of the primitive races that still conserve the pure original wisdom. Uh, the communication with them is frequent. So there you have it. Now we have an explanation for the Nazca lines, aside from just having to wonder why they did it. This is from the Atlantean civilization. All right, now we're going to get into Shambhala. And uh, remember how I said the Germans were obsessed with finding Shambhala? This is a really cool depiction, artist depiction of the Germans actually discovering the underground city. Buddhist texts say that Shambhala can be reached only by a long and difficult journey across the wilderness of deserts and mountains. 
and warn that only those who are called and have the necessary spiritual preparation will be able to find it. Others will only others will find only blinding storms, empty mountains, or even death. One text says that the kingdom of Shambhala is round, but it is usually depicted as an eight-petaled lotus blossom, a symbol of the heart chakra. Indeed, an old Tibetan story states that the kingdom of Shambhala is in your own heart. As Edwin Birnbaum points out, the guidebooks to Shambhala, whose puzzling directions are a mixture of realism and fantasy, can be read on one level as instructions for taking an inner journey from the familiar world on the surface consciousness through the wilds of the subconscious to the hidden sanctuary of the superconscious. And I, I just think that's a great explanation of Shambhala and where that comes from. So it's a Buddhist, it's from Buddhist text. And notice how it says you have to have, have the necessary spiritual preparation to find it. And we this is we hear this through all testimonies. If you want to find these entrances, you're not just gonna go. Even you can go to the alleged spots where people have gone to inner earth. Physically, you're not going to see anything and you have to be invited into these dimensions. Um, and it's a spiritual journey. But I also find it interesting, this map they show, this like Lotus, this circular map, there's many different versions of this. And the flat earthers love these maps. This is to, for them, this is the proof of the ice wall. Right. This is their ice wall map. It has nothing to do with that. It's the lotus flower. It's a Buddhist text. And it talks about Shambhala and the inner earth. There's a million versions of this. And like I said, the flat earthers love them. So then the Nazi connection with Shambhala in Tibet. Many high-ranking members of the Nazi regime, including Hitler, but especially Himmler and Hess, held convoluted occult beliefs. Prompted by those beliefs, the Germans sent an official expedition to Tibet in 1938, between 1938 and 1939, at the invitation of the Tibetan government to attend the New Year celebrations. So we just, we got to keep in mind what's going on here with the Germans. So, and I showed you the book earlier, uh, in the 1592, that 500 Germans colonized basically the core or the crust of the earth. And they finally broke through after three generations into hollow earth. So we have German knowledge of the hollow earth in the 1500s. And then in 18, in the 1891, the coming race was written about the Aryan race. Now, how would that book have been written unless somebody some way, somehow got information from this original German colonist out to the surface, to someone on the surface who wrote a story about what their ancestors discovered. So Hitler took this book very seriously. And he took, he believed in with beyond the shadow of the doubt based on his ancestors and information he had of Shambhala and the inner earth. So they sent an actual expedition in the 1930s. Actually, they went earlier to Antarctica in 1901, but then again in the late 30s. And this is an actual photograph of the expedition. Uh, the Nazi scientists, um, they were in search of their Aryan origins. So you, they don't, you would not send a group of scientists to go look for a place that you, you you're not sure if it exists. They were positive that the earth was hollow and they were going to find it. And I think that was the main mission, one of main, Hitler's main missions behind the scenes. And then here we go again, the secret journey to planet Serpo, the book that holds all the answers. Not really, but there's a lot in this book. Yeah, there is. 
So it all corroborates with the Germans discovering inner earth. And we found we can just further prove this. You can read this, Aaron, if you'd like. At the innermost core of the Black Dragon Society was the Green Dragon Society. Here, political and economic power resolved down to occult and Black magical power. Ostensibly, the Green Dragons were a small Buddhist mon monastic sect, although the monks also observed the Shinto ceremonies. In the 16th century, they chose Kyoto as their central location. In the 19th century, it became known that the Green Dragons maintained a close affiliation with a mysterious group called the Society of Green Men, who lived in a remote monastery and underground community in Tibet and communicated with the green dragons only at the astral level. Capable of manifesting tremendous psychic and occult power, the green men easily controlled the green dragons who viewed the liaison as advantageous to them, not realizing who was controlling whom. Able to see into and travel through time, the green men had far-reaching plans extending to the year 5000. Impressed with German-Prussian militarism, the Green Men decided that an alliance with Germany would help them reach their 15th century goals. Consequently, they convinced the Green Dragons to invite Haushofer into the society and to initiate him into some of their mysteries. By giving him powers that only they could convey, they hoped to use him as the catalyst to bring about an invincible fascist German state. So that was Karl Haushofer, who spent time over in Tibet with the Green Dragons, the Society of Green Men, which... They were essentially, if you read the book, they were channeling reptilians in, yeah. in some caves in Tibet. And they were getting orders directly from a reptilian underground civilization. And Carl Haushofer was a linguist. And he was sent over there to get this information and translate it and bring it back to Hitler. And it was Haushofer that actually groomed Hitler into power with this information. So this is important because, well, we'll just keep going and you'll understand why it's important. So the exact location of the Tibetan monastery of the Society of Green Men is not known, and it is unlikely that Haushofer knew where it was. The monks communicated with the green dragons through the astral realm, so they never had to reveal where they were. In retrospect, it has become clear that the green men were connected with the huge underground empire of the reptilian extraterrestrials from Alpha Draconis which was said to extend from southwestern Tibet all the way across the Indian subcontinent to Benares, India. This empire is called Patala, or Snake World, in Hindu mythology, and it is said to be the home of the storied Nagas, or the serpent race, who have been worshipped by some and feared as demons by others in India since ancient times. It is said to be a massive seven-level complex of huge caverns and tunnels deep underground. The serpent people are believed to reside there mainly in their capital city of Bogawadi. It is known that there are at least two entrances to the world of the Nagas. One entrance is at the Shesna's Well in Benares, and the other is in the mountains around the beautiful lake uh, Mana Sorovar, <laughs> about 500 miles west of Lhasa. At 15,000 feet elevation, it is the highest freshwater lake in the world and it is said to be favored by the Buddha as a meditative retreat. Bruce Allen Walton, also known as Brenton, now deceased, has emerged on the internet as one of the most authoritative figures on the alien colonies on Earth. He claims that locals around the lake have reportedly seen reptilians in that region and have seen their wingless flying craft entering and leaving the mountains. We know now that the reptilians are closely associated 
with the so-called grays originally from Zeta Reticuli. So it would be very likely that the gray colony also exists in Atala. So Carl Haushofer was well aware of the inner earth from spending time with the society of the green men and the black dragon society, essentially in Tibet, who knows what was actually shared with him. Uh, but we do have documentation that he was aware of an inner earth, uh, at least a reptilian colony, but who, but possibly who knows what else. And this is something I found very interesting. I found in the deep depths of the internet, this is, the International Society for a Complete Earth, which was found, formed in Missouri in 1977. And they are in possession of a letter written by former Nazi U-boat crewman to his comrade back in Germany. Now, this is important. I hope you guys are still with me. The curious thing about this letter is that it is written that it was written after U-boat 209 disappeared in Antarctica while searching for the entrance to inner Earth using charts drafted by German General Karl Haushofer. So the expedition that went to Antarctica, looking for inner earth in Tibet and Antarctica, uh, the picture we showed you earlier of those Germans, they apparently, they were using charts drafted by General Karl Haushofer. And which is really interesting to me because it would make sense that he would actually have charts if he was spending time with the Society of Green Men and channeling reptilians, essentially. So this letter, the uh, International Society for Complete Earth, is in possession of that letter, actually arrived in Germany in 1947, and the handwriting was confirmed by the man's family. So this letter had has been authenticated by the man's family. By his own it, family. By his own, by his own family. It's a handwritten letter. Translated from German, the letter states... April 4, April 20th, 1947. Dear old comrade, this news will be a, a surprise for you. The submarine 209 made it. The earth is hollow. The whole crew is well, but cannot come back. We are not prisoners. This is your last connection with submarine 209. With hearty greetings, your friend Hans. So that's profound. So the people that disappeared looking for inner earth, apparently they received a letter from them. And this was the only letter they received in 1947. And they determined that their earth is hollow and they couldn't come back. If this letter is authentic, then that's a huge smoking gun piece of evidence, in my opinion. Yeah, that's huge. All right, we're going to get a little bit into the smoky God because you can't talk about the hollow earth without covering this book. You want to read this, Aaron? The Smoky God is a classical hollow earth tale. On its pages, you will learn the amazing story of Norwegian seaman Olaf Jansen and his father coming upon a land beyond the North Pole and inside the earth, their encounter with its giant inhabitants and other incredible discoveries. The real life account of a Norwegian sailor named Olaf Jansen, his story set in the 1800s is told in Willis Emerson's biography entitled The Smoky God. Olaf's little sloop drifted so far north by the, by storm that he actually sailed into a polar entrance and lived for two years with one of the colonies of the Agartha network called Shambhala the Lesser. He describes his hosts as those of the central seat of government for the inner continent, measuring a full 12 feet in height, extending courtesies and showing kindness, laughing heartily when they had to improvise chairs for my father and I to sit in. 
Olaf tells of a smoky, in quotes, inner sun uh, world compromise of three-fourths land and one-fourth water. So one of the things in the Smoky God that Olaf Jansen claims is that that's where the Garden of Eden is. And according to Olaf Jansen, in the beginning of this old world of ours was created solely for the within world, where are located the four great rivers, the Euphrates, the Pison, the Gihon, and the Tigris. If you know anything about the Garden of Eden, it's supposed to exist where those four rivers merge. These same names of rivers, when applied to the streams on the outside surface of the earth, are purely traditional from an antiquity beyond the memory of man. On the top of a high mountain near the fountainhead of these four rivers, Olaf Jansen, the Norseman, claims to have discovered the long-lost Garden of Eden, the veritable navel of the earth, and to have spent over two years studying and reconnoitering in its marvelous within land, exuberant with stupendous plant life and abounding in giant animals, a land where people live to be centuries old after the order of the uh, Metsula and other biblical characters, a region where one quarter of the inner earth is surface is water and three quarters is land, and where there are large oceans and many rivers and lakes where the cities are superlative in construction and magnificence, where modes of transportation are as far in advance of ours. Uh, can I say something real quick? Yeah, please. So there's a corroborating thing here. In the book, The uh, Messages from Hollow Earth by Diane Robbins, which is an amazing book, by the way. Um, highly recommend it. Uh, in that book, so that book is supposedly ch channeled inner earth beings that are giving a bunch of information. And one of those beings talks about us surface dwellers that basically it's like we're living on the roof of a house <laughs> because they they mentioned that the inside the interior of the earth is is what's meant for life uh and we're basically living on like the like what the equivalent of like if you would live on the roof of your house it doesn't make right. any sense <laughs> right right and it, and it even says that all advanced civilizations throughout the the whole universe or, or at least our galaxy i can't remember which but they all live in the interior of the planet, not the exterior. So he said only the more primitive civilizations like us live on the exterior, but all the advanced ones live on the interior because they're they're protected. It's much more suitable for for life, actually. So right. that this is a good corroborating uh, thing for that because right. Um, and it's and it would make sense why no one's found the Garden of Eden <laughs> because right. it's inside the planet. Inside the planet, right? And just so you know, here is a, a map of the four rivers converging, and this is the apparent location where the Garden of Eden was supposed to have existed in the Persian Gulf, yet they've never discovered anything because those rivers actually pour into the surface inside the planet, and they converge, it, they truly converge inside the planet and begin inside the planet, and that's where the Garden of Eden lies. And this is interesting. This is also from the Smoky God. Uh, some of the rivers within Olaf Jansen's claims are larger than our Mississippi and Amazon rivers combined in point of volume of water carried. Indeed, their greatness is occasioned by their width and depth rather than their length. It is at the mouths of these mighty rivers as they flow northward and southward along the inside surface of the earth that mammoth icebergs are found, some of them 15 and 20 miles wide and from 40 to 100 miles in length. Is it not strange that there has never been an iceberg encountered either in the Arctic or Antarctic Ocean that is not comprised of freshwater? 
Modern scientists claim that freezing eliminates the salt, but Olaf Janssen claims differently. So he's claiming that these icebergs are actually coming from the oceans and rivers inside the planet. And that's why all the icebergs are freshwater. Um, and scientists just, they think the salt disappears magically when it freezes, which makes no sense. Right. On the northern boundaries of Alaska, and still more frequently on the Siberian coast, are found boneyards containing tusks of ivory in quantities so great as to suggest the burying places of antiquity. From Olaf Janssen's account, they have come from the great prolific animal life that bounds in the fields and forests and on the banks of numerous rivers of the inner world. The materials were caught in the ocean's currents and were carried out on ice flows and have accumulated like driftwood on the Siberian coast. This has been going on for ages and hence these mysterious boneyards. So if you guys know anything about the Siberian boneyards, they constantly find a plethora of mammoth bones and other bones that seem so fresh. They think they're so well preserved because of the ice. But according to Olaf Jansen, they're well preserved because they're fresh. And when they die in the inner earth and they get washed out into sea, they end up in places like this in Siberia where it's technically a boneyard for these skeletons. And this is an article from 2020, Wooly Mammoth with preserved poop, wool, and ligaments dredged from the Siberian lake. Now, how would that even be possible if that's an ancient woolly mammoth? This, they have no idea. This is a fresh kill that has washed into the Siberian lake, and that's what they're looking at here. And the diet, the stuff that they're finding in their stomach, doesn't even match with what history tells us the climate was supposed to be at that time. Uh, there's so many discrepancies. Um, so a lot of these bone beds are actually fresh animals from the hollow earth washing up onto the surface. And then here's a little video that explains that a little better. The existence of Agartha just explains all the strange things happening here. For example, researchers note that the temperature increases for some reason as it approaches the poles. This phenomenon is called the Arctic amplification, and one of the first to speak about it was American meteorologist William Sellers in 1969. And in the northern polar region of the ocean, they found plant seeds that seemingly shouldn't be in such a cold place. Moreover, it turned out that icebergs around the North Pole are composed of frozen freshwater, not seawater. In addition, scientists found red pollen of unknown origin on these ice blocks. There's another suspicious fact that some bird species migrate to the north before winter. Why flee from the cold to an even colder place? Usually, ornithologists explain the need for birds to avoid competition for food with other bird species that remain in warmer regions. It sounds a little doubtful. And this is not the last possible evidence that somewhere in the north, there may be an entrance to warm areas with abundant vegetation. For example, one can observe the so-called driftwood along the coast of frosty Greenland. These are drifting areas with trees washed ashore on the island. The length of some trees reaches as much as five meters. But where did they come from? The exact same question arises among archaeologists who discovered in the ice on the northern coast of Siberia not only a mammoth, which is natural for this environment, but also an elephant, rhinoceros, hippopotamus, and a lion. 
These animals can live only in warm regions. And the most interesting thing is that in the stomach of frozen mammoths, they found tropical plants which do not grow in circumpolar regions. It turns out that Agartha could be somewhere nearby with its abundance of animals and vegetation. In addition, this city may have more than one or even two entrances. This became clear thanks to the analysis of many legends about such an underworld, which surprisingly are very similar, although they're found in different countries. So there you have it. And, and uh, in Olaf Jansen's book, he talks about the, the coming across gigantic tree stumps of driftwood uh, on islands on the surface whenever they were sailing. Um, they were just going north, only by rumors of this hidden land. They didn't know where they were going. They were just heading north. But they started coming across islands with those massive trees. And mm -hmm. there's not supposed to be anything up there, any vegetation at all. So um, where are the trees coming from? And they also speak of red pollen. So a lot of the ice up in the North Pole is actually red. Uh, there's like a red pollen in it. And in that book, I couldn't find a page. I looked, I didn't, I just couldn't find it. But it also explains which exact plant that red pollen is coming from. And it's literally blowing out of the hole uh, yeah. in, in, onto the surface. And that's what creates the red ice flows. So now we're going to get into the Agartha network, which is different than Hollow Earth. And sorry if we repeat some stuff and it seems like we jump around. It's hard to put all this in order, but uh, we did our best. This I just put this in here just to help you guys understand where the term Agartha comes from. Uh, this is from that same book I mentioned earlier, The Hollow Earth by Dr. R.W. Bernard. The word Agartha is of Buddhist origin. It refers to the subterranean world or empire in whose existence all the true Buddhists fervently believe. They also believe that this subterranean world has millions of inhabitants and many cities, all under the supreme domination of the subterranean world capital Shambhala, where dwells the supreme ruler of this empire, known in the Orient as the king of the world. It is believed that he gave orders to the Dalai Lama of Tibet, who was his terrestrial representative, his messages being transmitted through certain secret tunnels connecting the subterranean world of Tibet. Similar mysterious tunnels honeycomb Brazil, Brazil in the west and Tibet in the east seem to be the two parts of the earth where contact between subterranean world and surface world may be the most easily achieved due to the existence of these tunnels. And this just goes on to talk a little bit more about location, certain locations that lead underground. And um, one of the interesting parts is that various gigantic statues of early Egyptian gods and kings, as those of Buddha found throughout the Orient, represent subterranean supermen who came to the surface to help the human race. They are generally represented as sexless. They were emissaries of Agartha, the subterranean paradise, which is the goal of all true Buddhists to reach. Again, here's your flat earth map. Um, so <laughs> what's interesting is they said they're generally represented as sexless. Uh, in the Cahokia Mounds in the museum, if we, I don't think we included it in the documentary, but some of the skeletons that they discovered, they in even in the museum, it says they're sexless. 
um, which could be because they couldn't identify them, or maybe they're trying to tell us without telling us that these were not humans as we know them. Yeah. It's interesting. It says uh, one of the supposed entrances is the Pyramid of Giza. Oh, yeah. I didn't read that part. And that the, the pharaohs were in contact with, you know, quote unquote, gods from the underworld. The uh, yeah. underworld. So there you go. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, the entrance of this tunnel was guarded by the Lamas, who were sworn to keep its actual whereabouts a secret from the outsiders. By order of the Dalai Lama, a similar tunnel was believed to connect the secret chambers at the base of the Pyramid of Giza. Yeah. So obviously, I, I would venture to say that all the ancient sites lead underground. Yeah. And that's why they were built where they were built. Or one of the reasons. Okay, so we're going to let Billy Woodard tell us about his experience um, being taken in the Area 51 and then into Telos. And uh, this is a little bit of a longer video, so just sit back and enjoy this one. And uh, he leaves, I sit down. And here's this stack. Oh, so really quick, just, so, just for um, a reference, this is whenever he is brought into Area 51 and he is relieving somebody else of duty. So whenever he, uh, do you, you want to say who, who Billy Woodard is really quick? Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I just <laughs> so Billy Woodard is a hollow earth whistleblower. Essentially he has an incredible testimony that's way too long to get into. Um, but he apparently came from hollow earth and he was fast tracked through our military, um, to, and then sent to area 51 to be a liaison for the inner earth beings because they wouldn't work with our government. They would only work with somebody of their choice. So they chose Billy. So at age 16, he was fast-tracked through, I think, the Air Force or whatever branch of government military he was in and given above top-secret clearance, sent to Area 51, and this is where he tells his story. And that's So he was brought here as a baby from an Earth, correct? Yeah, yeah. So he, they had to take it. Him and his sister, him and his twin sister, had to take the form of a... They can't come here because it's too dense, so they had to take new bodies. Um, so they came as as babies, and they were left in a dumpster but they knew this woman was going to find him and take him take care of him uh it was a whole long it's incredible it's an incredible testimony but so they grew up their whole lives on the surface on the surface like they're actually an earth being correct up. correct all right here we go and uh he leaves i sit down and here's this stacks of records about this high on the on my desk I'm going, oh my God, that's a lot of reading. <laughs> I'm a beer for a while. So I start reading. First thing I pull off, it says, 1947, Admiral Byrd, diary. So I sat down and started reading. The more I read, the more interested I got. And then continued reading it read it in its entirety and then I looked at my uh, assistant and I'm going is this for real he says oh yeah it's for real wow interesting right after I finished reading that this guy walks into the end of the end of my office and he goes uh, you're requested on level 27 I said 27 what level are we on now? You're on level 10. I said, uh-huh. And what's on 27? 
you'll find out. Anyway, you're being called by name, requested by name, to go down to level 27. I said, okay, uh, is this a, my superior? And they said, no, no, okay. So I put on my jacket, follow this guy to the elevator, we go down 27th, to the 27th level, step off to, off the 27th level, and we're in a cavern. Walk out of the cavern, walk through this cavern, uh, into another tunnel that had looked like it had been freshly drilled or bored out, walk down this tunnel for about oh, a mile, and then they said, okay, that's who, who called you by name, requested you by name. I'm looking at these two huge giant people <laughs> standing next to this cylindrical vehicle. I, okay, and I walk over there and I said, all right, uh, how do you, why, why am I here? <laughs> You're going on a journey. And I said, I am. They said, you are. I turned around and looked at my superior and they said, document everything you see and hear. We want a full report. I'm going, okay. All right. So I walk toward this craft. The door slides up real silently. Like cigar-shaped craft that we talked about? Yeah. Pretty much like cigar shaped, um, almost almost like shaped like a bullet, similar. Then we walked into this. I walked into this vessel, sat down. They said, "Strap in." So I strapped in, and I said, "Where are we going?" You're going to Talos. I said, "Okay, where? What is Talos?" Talos is a city beneath the, uh, the mountain called Mount Shasta. I mean, before I got in, I was feeling the sides of this tunnel. It felt cold to the touch, but yet it was more of like a crystal tube, if you will. Um, and this vessel was in it, and you couldn't slide your hand between the, uh, the side of the wall and the vessel. That's how close it was to this side of the wall. I said, this is mighty close. And it had to be quite, you know, precision very well if this thing's going to go down these tunnels at extremely rapid speed. And they said not to worry. And um, I, so I sat down and this door closed silently. The vessel started to move. And I felt this humming sound. Saw it, you know, heard the humming, humming sound, and then uh, the humming stopped, and the vessel started moving. Um, it went first; it was going slow, and then it got picked up speed. Um, then it was going by. I mean, the, the the scenery was going by so fast; it looked like a blur. You you didn't you, you couldn't hardly distinguish anything on the sides at all. It was that fast. I said, how fast are we going? And they said, by your recollection, 4,000 miles per hour. I said, 4,000 miles per hour? And they said, yes.
we have arrived at our destination. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. I said, how long did that trip take? And they said, only a matter of moments. I said, okay, now you're telling me Mount Shasta under in California, right? And they go, yes. And we just left Area 51. That's several hundred miles. It's about 800 miles from Pahrump, Nevada to Mount Shasta. So it only took a matter of moments. They were there. I stepped out of this, uh, this vehicle and I stepped into the city. It was domed underneath uh, uh, this, this dome-shaped city. Uh, some of the buildings were pyramidal-shaped. Some of them were round. Um, and it was quite an interesting uh, sight to see. People going to and fro. Um, most of them were very tall and they had blue skin. So both, this is a two-part interview and each interview is like two hours long. So the, the, his testimony is incredible. And if you want to hear more about that, we linked those interviews under the first part of this webinar. Both parts are there if you're interested, but he goes on to tell all about Telos and so much more. It's fascinating. They're, they're amazing. So worth watching too. Yeah. Incredible testimonies. And uh, this is Jessica Jones. Uh, I actually sent her level 27 of Area 51 as a blind target to remote view. And she verified like everything in her data shows that Billy is not lying because what he described it on level 27 is exactly matches her data down to some very specific details. So she's determined and I sent her these interviews and based on her conclusion, he is not lying. This is a true story. That's corroborated yep, by remote viewing data. Okay, so this is also from uh, Smoky God, and this explains kind of the difference between the Agartha network and Hollow Earth. So think of Shambhala the Lesser as the United Nations of over 100 subterranean cities that form the Agartha network. It is indeed the seat of government for the inner world, while Shambhala the Lesser is an inner continent. Its satellite colonies are smaller enclosed ecosystems located just beneath the Earth's crust or discreetly within the mountains. All cities in the Agartha network are physical and are of the light, meaning that they are benevolent spiritually based societies who follow the Christic teachings of the order of Melchizedek. Quite simply, they continue in the tradition of the great mystery schools on the surface, honoring such beings beings as Jesus, Sananda, Buddha, Isis, Osiris, all the ascended masters that we on the surface know and love, in addition to the spiritual teachers of their own long-standing heritage. Why did they choose to live underground? Consider the magnitude of the geological earth changes that have swept the surface over the past 100,000 years. Consider the lengthy Atlantean-Lumerian War and the power of thermonuclear weaponry that eventually sank and destroyed these two highly advanced civilizations, the Sahara, the Gobi, the Australian outback, and the deserts of the U.S. are but a few examples of the de devastation that resulted. The subsidies were created as refugees for these people and as a safe havens for the sacred records, teachings, and technologies that were cherished by these ancient cultures. So basically, it doesn't cover it all here, but the Agartha network is 
the colonies that exist inside the Earth's crust. And then hollow Earth is where Shambhala is. And that's the that's where there's continents and oceans and all this stuff. And that would be near that's where that central sun is located. And that's where Admiral Bird flew into, uh, Olaf Jansen with the Smoky God and a few other people. So the hollow earth and inner earth can technically be two different things. So to put it simply, my understanding is what should be called inner earth or the Agartha network is inside of the crust, Mm -hmm. whereas the hollow earth is on the other side, the other side of the crust. Correct. Whereas you go through the holes in the poles or the holes wherever, and then you end up on the bottom of what we're on top of, basically. And that's... The hollow, that's the hollow earth, but the inner earth is in between that space and inside the crust. In the crust and in the mountains. And in the mountains. In the mountains. of the crust and stuff like that. So apparently these are capital cities of the Agartha network. Posted, the primary and Atlantis outpost located beneath Mato Grosso plains of region of Brazil, population 1.3 million, which... Take note of that first location, the Mato Grosso Plains of Brazil. Shanxi, the refuge of the Ewer culture, a branch of the Lemurians who chose to form their own colonies 50,000 years ago. Entrance is guarded by a Himalayan Lemaisery population, three quarters of a million, three and three quarters million. Uh, I don't know if that's correct. Rama, remnant of the surface city of Rama, India, located near Japir. Inhabitants are known for their classic Hindu features, population 1 million. Shingwa, remnant of the northern migration of the Uyghurs, located on the border of Mongolia and China, population 3 quarter million. Telos, primary Lumerian outpost located within Mount Shasta, a small secondary city in Mount Lassen, California, U.S. Telos, translated, means communication with spirit, population 1.5 million. Sorry, I butchered all those names. But either way, we're looking at five capital cities here of the Agartha network. And I'm going to focus on Malo Grasso just for a second, because when I, whenever I learned about Malo Grasso being one of the entrances, I just got on Google Earth and I just wanted to see what I could come across, just, you know, scanning the area. And this is what I found. And it's no longer visible there anymore. So whatever it was, it's now gone. So... Mato Grasso is supposed to be the state in Brazil where one of the entrances to Telos is, to Inner Earth. Many people have talked about this. So I'm here on Google Earth just messing around. And look what I found. First of all, when you zoom in on this area, look how it changes color. Just this one area. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So then, I found this little dark hole. Maybe keep zooming in on it. Is it blue? I don't know what that is. that blue light is (laughs) 
And it's just so weird that that one section is colored like that. So I, I just found that interesting. Doesn't prove anything at all, but it's not there anymore. Uh, so maybe I caught a portal that <laughs> Google Earth uh, captured. Somebody caught what looks like a portal above the arch on Google Earth one time on the surface. Really? It was it was a black triangle above the arch, like this black void. Uh, so I think it's possible that it catches anomalies. Um, oh, yeah. All right. Here we go. Spotlight on Telos. So inquiring minds want to know how over a million people can make their home inside of Mount Shasta. While we're stretching our imaginations, our neighbors, the Japanese, have already blueprinted underground cities in an answer to their surface area problem. Subsidy habitation has, for thousands of years, been a natural vehicle for human evolution. Now here's a peek at a well-thought-out ecosystem. The dimensions of this dome city are approximately 1.5 miles wide by 2 miles deep. Telos is comprised of five levels. Level 1. This top level is the center of commerce, education, and administration. The pyramid-shaped temple is at the is the central structure and has a capacity of 50,000. Surrounding it are government buildings, the equivalent of a courthouse that promotes an enlightened judicial system, halls of records, arts and entertainment facilities, a hotel for visiting foreign emissaries, a palace which houses the Ra and Ranumu, the reigning king and queen of the royal Lumerian lineage, whom are ascended masters, a communications tower, a spaceport, schools, food, clothing, dispatches. That's level one. Level two, a manufacturing center as well as a residential level. Houses are circular in shape and is dust-free because of it. <clears throat> like surface living, housing for singles, couples, and extended families is the norm. Level three, hydroponic gardens. Highly advanced hydroponic technology feeds the entire city with some to spare for inner city commerce. All crops yield larger and tastier fruits, veggies, and soy products that make for a varied and fun diet for Telosians. Now completely vegetarian, the Agartha cities have taken meat substitutes to new heights. Level four, more hydroponic gardens, more manufacturing, some natural park areas. Level five, the nature level. Set about a mile beneath the surface ground level, this area is a large natural environment. It serves as a habitat for a wide variety of animals, including those many extinct on the surface. All species have been bred in a nonviolent atmosphere, and those that might be carnivorous on the surface now enjoy soy steaks and human interaction. Here you can romp with a saber-toothed tiger with wild abandon. Together with the other plant levels, enough oxygen is produced to sustain the biosphere. Okay, so we're going to get into the language and some of the ways of life of the uh, Telos. The language, while dialects vary from city to city, Solera Maru, translated as the solar language, is commonly spoken. This is the root language for the sacred for our sacred languages, such as Sanskrit and Hebrew. By the way, in uh, Smoky God, he realized once they were in the city or in Hollow Earth that it was all everything was written in sanskrit it was a type of a sanskrit language so there you go government a council of 12 six men and six women together with the ra and ranumu do collective problem solving and serve as guides and guardians of the people positions of royalty such as are held by the ra and ranumu are regarded as ones 
of responsibility in upholding God's divine plan. The high priest and ascended master named Adama is also an official representative. Computers. The Agarthian computer system is amino acid based and serves as a vast array of functions. All of the subsidies are linked by this highly spiritualized information network. The system monitors inner city and galactic communication while simultaneously serving the needs of the individual at home. It can, for instance, report your body's vitamin or mineral deficiencies, or when necessary, convey pertinent information from the Akashic records for personal growth. Um, that's an amino, that's impressive to me, the amino acid based. So it's like a biological computer internet that they have. Money, non-existent. All inhabitants' basic needs are taken care of. Luxuries are exchanged via sophisticated barter system. Transportation, moving sidewalks, inner level elevators, and electromagnetic sleds resembling our snow mobiles, snowmobiles, oh, yes. sorry, <laughs> representing <laughs> resembling our snowmobiles within the city. For travel between cities, residents take the tube, an electromagnetic subway system capable of speeds up to 3,000 miles per hour. Yes, Agarthians are well-versed in intergalactic etiquette and are members of the Confederation of Planets. Space travel has been perfected as, the, as has the ability for interdimensional shifts that render these ships undetectable. So interdimensional shifts that render the ships undetectable. Take note of that. We're going to cover that soon. Entertainment, theater, concerts, and a wide variety of arts. Also, for you Trekkies, the Holodex program, your favorite movie or chapter in Earth histories, and you can become a part of it. Childbirth, a painless three months, not nine, a very sacred process whereby upon conception, a woman will go to the temple for three days, immediately welcoming the child with beautiful music, thoughts, and imagery while they're birthing in the company of both parents is standard. Height. Due to cultural differences, average heights of subterranean citizens vary generally 6'5 to 7'5 in Telos, while nearly 12 feet in Shambhala the Lesser. Age. Unlimited. Death by degeneration is simply not a reality in Telos. Most Agarthians choose to look in age between 30 and 40 and stay there. While technically they may be thousands of years old, by not believing in death, this society is not limited by it. Upon completing a desired experience, one can disincarnate at will. And so going back to their transportation and their ability for interdimensional shifts that render these ships undetectable, why we don't see them coming and going from the planet. And if you type in interdimensional shift or a dimensional shift on Google, it even tells you exactly what it is. A dimensional shift was a phenomenon whereby an object or person transported from one location to another via folded space transport or shifted to a parallel universe on a different dimensional plane. So this explains exactly how they're remaining hidden, why we don't see them. They're, they travel in another dimension. And this is why just UFOs in general, you see them phasing in and out all the time. This is what they're doing. Right. Uh, you can read this one. This is about their beliefs on ascension. Ascension, absolutely, and much easier and more common than on the surface. Ascension is the ultimate goal of temple training. Why have they stayed underground all this time? In part, because the Garthians have learned the futility of war and violence and are patiently waiting for us to draw the same conclusion. They are such gentle folk that even our judgmental thoughts are physically harmful to them. 
Secrecy has been their protection. Until now, the truth of their existence has been veiled by spirit. When can we visit? Our entrance to the subsidies depends on the purity of our intentions and our capacity to think positively. A warm welcome from both worlds is the ideal and must be expressed by more than just the lightworking community. Currently, a few hundred brave subterraneans are working on the surface. In order to blend with the masses, they have undergone temporary cellular change so that physically they don't tower above the rest of us. They may be recognized by their gentle, sensitive nature and somewhat mysterious accent. We wish to introduce you to a very special one of them. So that's extremely fascinating to me. They take a temper, they undergo a temporary cellular change so they can exist on the surface. But what I also find fascinating is they are such gentle folk that even our judgmental thoughts are physically harmful to them, which would explain why they're not up here running around and they're that and that lines up that corroborates with a lot of uh, ET contactee testimony where the ETs are they're not they're not just telepathic, but they're tell empathic mean they they can feel everything that you're feeling and they feel your emotions and and your uh, negative thoughts. Yeah, any, yeah negative anger fear uh any of these really extreme negative emotions uh actually physically hurt them because they're they feel it that intensely and that they're that sensitive uh to emotions that if you're if you can't control your emotions very well it's gonna actually be detrimental to them be, right right so like they're gonna have to like shield from you basically right um so that's that's one of multiple reasons why ETs in general or in earth beings are basically the same can't just come out and live among us at this point in time while we're most of us are just you know most of us are judging the fuck out of people right and, and just very programmed and very um unenlightened to put it simply you know we, right. we have to meet them halfway we have to meet them halfway that's the whole point of exactly. uh, everything you know so we're going to get into a little bit of Lowell Johnson's testimony on Telos. We'll let him, we're going to play a short video from our interview with him uh, before we move on. So while Lowell Johnson, while hiking on Mount Shasta, Lowell was approached by a white robed being who telepathically invited him into Telos, the inner earth beneath Mount Shasta. He was given a tour of Telos by this being. He describes each level in the city in vivid detail and what he was told by inner earth beings. There's no one that's going to see me from where I was now that I was down in that space. I had some grapes, I had some water, and I was listening to music on my phone through my earpods. My uh, earpods. Um, the music had stopped after I had just put my grapes and water away. The music stopped, and at about the same time when I sat up, I sensed almost like a shadow because I don't know what else to call it. And it was like moving from where I was sitting because I was flat on the ground and like this, in about the same way, I felt almost there was a similar canopy that was coming over me this way. Well, when I kind of sat up to take notice of whatever that was, I felt a breeze from behind me. And when I turned around, there was a hole where I had been sitting against the rock and the only thing between me and the rock was dried brush. That was it. Well, now there was an opening that had to be, you know, it was two feet taller than I was. I'm six feet tall. So I stood up to turn around and see what this was. And 
as I turned, I could see that there was a little bit of a rise and then this went downward. As my eyes was adjusting to the light, it almost looked like there was somebody down there. And once I got that realization in my head, I heard somebody ask me, do you wish to see Telos? Wow. Well, mm. you, your engine kind of fires up. And I, it's not that I had any fear because I am all about experiencing things I have not yet. Mm -hmm. um, but this was going to be new to me. I wanted to know what it was. So I started to make my way down. And at first I thought, whoever this is down here, I thought was about my size, you know, adult size. And when I got closer and I could really see who it was, <laughs> this person's not six feet tall. They're like eight feet tall. They're two heads wow. taller than I am. Dressed in white, um, his garb had some colored ribbons on it. And I didn't know if that was um, just bling. Is that Lemurian bling? Or is yeah. that some indication of a rank that you held? Mm. When I got close enough, he said, you can call me Alex. I said, well, that'll be easy to remember because that's my son's name. He said, yeah, we know about your son. Follow me. So as we made wow. our way down this, and you know, in retrospect, it would make sense that this is a lavatory. This is all volcanic area around here. So it certainly makes sense that that's what this is. So as we start making our way down, he's telling me about the construct of um, Telos, uh, about the king and queen, and about the um, council of 13, and Adama, and um, how many levels there were. And as we got closer to the bottom, you could see light that was coming from the other side. Well, as we got closer to wherever this area was, I turned around to look behind me. And whatever opening I might have come from and whatever light might have come from that, yeah, there wasn't any more. It was <laughs> dark behind me. Right, so wow. this now opened up into, I just, I want to call it a staging area because I don't know what else to call it. But when I, we moved into this space, and it's pretty well lit, there are five more of these tubes on the opposite side. And there is a platform here just to our left. It's about six by six, and it appears to have like two bucket seats on top of it. There's another one off to the left over there. There's another one off to the right over there. And as I was kind of measuring all this up, <clears throat> Alex had made his way to the other side, sat down on this device uh, on the other side and invited me to sit next to him. Well, as soon as my butt hit that seat, this thing levitated and off we went. We headed toward that middle tube. And what I remember most about it is you understand the sensation of movement. You feel something moving past your physical form when that's happening, like a breeze. Uh, and even when there's no wind, you just understand that sensation. I didn't feel any of that. Nonetheless, we were moving. And as we got closer to wherever the end of this tube was and light started to come from the other side, now you can see whatever crystals were embedded in this wall are starting to catch the light refraction from the other side. And every inch you took, it just changed the light refraction. So you felt like you were in a live kaleidoscope going through this thing. I didn't want it to end. But when my heart core had grown so much from this joy, now we open up into what this is. I'm seeing level one of Telos. 
So he moves us into the space and then rises up. So you've seen in photographs, cityscapes, this is what I see of the city of Telos. It's circular in orientation. There are crystal buildings everywhere. And in the center of this city is a white pyramid with a capstone on the top, which was also white that day. I'll learn a year later when um, I got to know who Diane Robbins was. Diane has written three books on Telos and has been channeling Adama for uh, 40 years, maybe longer. Um, she lives in Shasta and bless her heart, she agreed to spend some time with me. And when I did, after I left that day, she had sent me something that she had never put in her books. And she said, you know, there was something that occurred to me when you told, told me about the capstone again. She said, you know, there's correlation between that and the day of the week. You were there on a Sunday. The capstone mm. was white. That's why everyone was wearing white. Had you been there on Saturday, it would have been purple. Had you been there on Wednesday, it would have been green. Oh, well, that was interesting to know. And that's really interesting corroboration because for him to specifically note the capstone color and then her know why it was that color. And he, mm. it wasn't in her book. So it's not like he could have read that in her book. You wasn't know, in her books, probably not on the internet anywhere. Yeah, I mean, how would he have known that? And then she's like, "Oh yeah, that lines up with exactly what I know that I've never put out publicly." So yeah. exactly. So this is Sharula, the Agarthan ambassador. Apparently, she lived in Mount Shasta for a while. Um, she's also and she's one of the inner Earth inhabitants that had her cellular undergone that cellular change, so she could live here on the surface and she did many interviews and this is part of one of her interviews transcribed sharula this is from her um oh yes there are many there are over 100 inner earth cities some of them are very similar the major one is called shambhala the lesser it has been existed for over half a million years it was formed by a group of people called the hyperboreans or the tripolians uh, the interviewer insights where is shambhala located shirula it's at the center of the planet itself in spite of what scientists have told people it is not a raging ball of fire how does one travel from city to city or from surface to inner city probably the most common method is what we call the tubes is a series of underground trains we've bored tunnels that run underneath all the oceans and all of the continents and connect all cities and several of the retreats to trains which look very much like a subway train, are run on a cushion of air, an electromagnetic cushion, so they never actually touch the sides of the tunnel. This cushion creates a force field without friction, and therefore they can achieve very high speeds. The trains are capable of running over 3,000 miles per hour. Which corroborates with what Billy Woodard said, if you remember. Right. He was told it was going 4,000 miles an hour. And right. here it's, it's over 3,000 miles an hour, so that's corroboration, right? Right. Um, between the surface and inner cities, how does one travel? There are several entrances that open up to the surface. We'll use a ship which is run by the Silver Fleet. The Silver Fleet, explain that, please. We are under the Ashtar command, and with this command are several fleets. The fleets native to Earth are the Silver Fleet. Earth is called a fallen planet simply because it's fallen into the third dimension of consciousness and has remained there. The Silver Fleet is made up of beings from the Agarthian cities. 
Many of the ships that people see in the air are Silver Fleet ships, except for the Nasties. How can one identify a Silver Fleet ship as opposed to the Nasties, as you call them? All the Ashtar Command ships, all the Confederation ships run from divine geometrics. The ships will be either cylinder or they will be saucer shaped or they will be round. There are not a lot of protrusions or and angles. They have the tendency to be smooth. The ships that come in boomerang shapes and other weird configurations are usually not Confederation ships. This is really interesting when she talks about childbirth. I find this absolutely fascinating and I think it's crucial that everyone understands this. Um, please share with us about how the women of Telos give birth to their children. We have returned the process of childbirth to divine order. Women in third dimensional bodies were only meant to bear children in three months. It was not meant to be a nine month process. Even now a fetus is formed in three months. When a woman realizes that she is pregnant, she goes instantly into the temple and for 24 hours, she is sealed in a chamber that produces absolutely nothing but beautiful images, beautiful sounds, beautiful thoughts, and she is constantly told how beautiful she is and how perfect her child is. So the very start of this life is impregnated in all of the cells of their being with how perfect and how loved they are. After three months, she returns to a birth chamber and a high priestess will put the mother in a slight altered state, whereas she feels no pain. She's just happy and euphoric. All births take place underwater, which produces almost no labor pains. The mother feels nothing but pressure. She's not going through trauma because the mother is relaxed. The baby goes through less physical pain. When the baby is born in the water, both parents are there to hold it. They allow the baby to float underwater for some time until the baby itself chooses to come to the surface and breathe. And because there is no trauma about breathing, the baby also has learned to take complete breaths and they're not shut off immediately by panic and pain. I mean, it's incredible. Like, it's just unbelievable what our, I don't know, you could say Big Pharma, Midwest the Midwestern medicine, what they have done to the childbirth process. You mean Western medicine? I'm sorry, Western medicine. Midwestern. <laughs> yeah. Midwestern too, whatever. Yeah, well, that's part of it. <laughs> uh, what is this? Oh, this is this is that video, uh, another clip from the that documentary. It just kind of summarizes the Agartha Network. And the Tibetans even call Shambhala the capital of that very Agartha. It's said that the people living there have a scientific knowledge and experience far superior to the knowledge of human beings. That's exactly what Admiral Byrd said. According to some esoteric traditions, Agartha has at least seven entrances. Three of them are in Brazil. The first is in Iguazu Falls. The second is in the state of Mato Grosso. And the third is in the city of Manaus. And in Ecuador, there's a cave which, according to local legends, also leads to a dungeon inhabited by superintelligent creatures. It's located in the city of Cueva de los Tayos, and several metal plates with engravings were found in this 200 million year old cave. Having deciphered these drawings, 
Hungarian-Argentine scientist Juan Moritz told the local press that he may be called crazy, but he's sure there are higher beings underground. And that's not all. In the Indian city of Varanasi, there's also something resembling a portal to the underworld. This is the Sheshna Well, which the locals consider the entrance to one of the mysterious cities of the world of Agartha, namely Patala. Legends say that it's home to Nagas, amazing, intelligent creatures that can take the form of a person or a reptile. They rarely appear to people and are engaged in the construction of underground cities around the world. That's why in India, there's a cult of snakes and dragons. This may be how the Agatharians are seen in India. In any case, it's virtually impossible to verify this. According to legends, descending into the well and plunging into its water, you can see a massive stone door with bas-reliefs of cobras, which can't be opened. I wonder what movie there that was from. It looks interesting. Yeah, uh, I think Doctor Strange, maybe? uh yeah i don't know but it's really interesting that, that's a fascinating summary of the entrances and i think that was from dr dr strange because uh how the effects on that so um, i'm going to play this video well i'll read it first because i think there's audio but uh, above a film recording of the opening of the hollow earth clouds move into the opening at a steady rate this is probably the south pole because of the clockwise rotation of the clouds the source of the video is unknown it was leaked possibly by someone on the Russian space station, MIR, airplanes are not allowed to fly over the poles. Take this video with a grain of salt. I don't know if it's authentic or not, but it's interesting. Basically, it's just a couple minutes of, of this. Um, it's just constant movement. Of, it's just like, almost like a funnel. the whole thing just because it's just that for a few minutes but it's interesting uh billy woodard talks about the entrances the the poles the holes at the poles being covered a hundred percent of the time by holographic clouds so there's a holographic overlay no matter when you go you're just going to see cloud coverage so the holes are hidden by holographic technology and they're and they're constantly monitored by essentially cloaked ships and space stations so anyone who attempts to go in, they're they're immediately on radar. So we're going to get into the missing diary of Admiral Byrd, which if you remember Billy Woodard's testimony earlier when he was brought in Area 51, that was the very first thing they had him read. And he was like, is this real? And they were like, oh, yeah. And if, his, if he is telling the truth, then that kind of verifies this portion that has been, you know, highly controversial for years and it's been debunked by some people, but whatever. Uh, just some more imagery of, you know, just to give you an idea of the holes. So this is from the diary. I'm only going to read a part of the diary, but not the part where he documents being inside the planet. It would be too long for us to sit here and read the whole thing. Uh, but actually, Aaron, if you want to start reading this, uh, sure. that would that would be helpful. I must write this diary in secrecy and obscurity. 
It concerns my Arctic flight of the 19th day of February in the year of 1947. There comes a time when the rationality of men must fade into insignificance and one must accept the inevitability of the truth. I am not at liberty to disclose the following documentation at this writing. Perhaps it shall never see the light of public scrutiny, but I must do my duty and record here for all to read one day. In a world of greed and exploitation of certain of mankind can no longer suppress that which is truth. 1,000 hours. We are crossing over the small mountain range and still proceeding northward as best as can be ascertained. Beyond the mountain range is what appears to be a valley with a small river or stream running through the center portion. There should be no green valley below. Something is definitely wrong and abnormal here. We should be over ice and snow. To the port side are great forests growing on the mountain slopes. Our navigation instruments are still spinning. The gyroscope is oscillating back and forth. I alter altitude to 1,400 feet and execute a sharp left turn to better examine the valley below. It is green with either moss or a type of knit grass. The light here seems different. I cannot see the sun anymore. We make another left turn and we spot what seems to be a large animal of some kind below us. It appears to be an elephant. No, it looks more like a mammoth. This is incredible. Yet there it is. Decrease altitude to 1,000 feet and take binoculars to better examine the animal. It is confirmed. It is definitely a mammoth-like animal. Report this to base camp. Encountering more rolling green hills now, the external temperature indicator reads 74 degrees Fahrenheit. Continuing on our heading now, navigation instruments seem normal now. I am puzzled over their actions. Attempt to contact base camp. Radio is not functioning. 1130 hours. Countryside below is more level and normal, if I may use that word. Ahead, we spot what seems to be a city. So now here's they're their on the inside fully now. This is impossible. Aircraft seems light and oddly buoyant. The controls refuse to respond. My God, off our port and starboard wings are a strange type of aircraft. They are closing rapidly alongside. They are disc-shaped and have a radiant quality to them. They are close enough now to see the markings on them. It is a type of swastika. This is fantastic. Where are we? What has happened? I tug at the controls again. They will not respond. We are caught in an invisible vice grip of some kind. I'll read this part. A radio crackles and a voice comes through in English with what perhaps is a slight Nordic or Germanic accent. The message is, welcome, Admiral, to our domain. We shall land you in exactly seven minutes. Relax, Admiral. You are in good hands. I note the engines of our plane have stopped running. The aircraft is under some strange control and is now turning itself. The controls are useless. Another radio message received. We begin the landing process now. And in the moments, the plane shudders slightly and begins a descent as though caught in some great unseen elevator. The downward motion is negligible and we touch down with only a slight jolt. I am making a hasty last entry in the flight log. Several men are approaching on foot toward our aircraft. They are tall with blonde hair. In the distance is a large shimmering city pulsating with rainbow hues of color. I do not know what is going to happen now, but I see no signs of weapons on those approaching. I hear now a voice ordering me by name to open the cargo door. I comply. So the, the second part of his journal that is really long that I'm not going to we're not going to go through, which is the juicy stuff, but uh, it's written after the fact. So he tells the, the account. So this was kind of written as he was flying. The second part is written after the fact, after he has his experience. 
And this is just the map that you've all seen. If you look at the top left, it says Admiral Byrd's flight, 1947. So that's allegedly where he flew into and the city he encountered. And this just kind of gives you an idea. So your Gartha network would, would exist in the crust. And that line within the crust that you see, according to these testimonies, that is the gravity belt. So the gravity belt isn't in the center of the planet. It's in the center of the crust. The center so of no, gravity is the center of the crust, not the center of the planet. Yeah. Right. So no matter what side of the crust you're on, you're always standing upright. And right. that's that's how they're able to exist on the inside of the planet. And there's the central sun. And then I think there's a... Or, okay. So this is all really quick. Um, then we'll play a quick video. This is also from that book, The Hollow Earth, that I referenced earlier. And this is the basically the forward in the book dedicated to the future explorers of the new world that exists beyond North and South Poles in the hollow interior of the Earth. Keep in mind, this was written in 1964, who will repeat Admiral Byrd's historic flight for 1,700 miles beyond the North Pole and that of his expedition for 2,300 miles beyond the South Pole, entering a new unknown territory not shown on any map covering an immense land area whose total size is larger than North America consisting of forest, mountains, lakes, vegetation, and animal life. The aviator, who will be the first to reach this new territory, unknown until Admiral Byrd first discovered it, will go down in history as a new Columbus and greater than Columbus, for while Columbus discovered a new continent, he will discover a new world. So this guy wrote this book well aware of Admiral Byrd's account in 1964. And then here's a video, brief video, just kind of talking about it. When we accidentally flew into some kind of crater in the ground, my crew and I noticed aircraft we had never seen before. Human-like creatures met us, but they seemed much more developed than people. The president has been advised. I am now detained and placed under strict control via the national security provisions of the United States of America. I am ordered to remain silent. These entries from Admiral Richard Byrd's personal diary miraculously leaked into the press in the second half of the 90s. A detailed description of the civilization that lives literally under our feet really shocked society because the records belonged not to some madman, but to a respected American military pilot with numerous state awards. And yeah, so whenever he came back and he informed i think the pentagon or whoever he uh informed the president he was told to remain silent and never speak of his findings he was basically threatened he was threatened uh, but but he came back with a message from the inner earth beings basically to cease and desist all nuclear weapons and atomic bombs because we were destroying ourselves and uh there's a whole other dimensions yeah. and other civilizations as well right so I'll try to find, I have the physical copy of the, the, the diary, but it's really hard to find like a PDF of it online. You can buy it, but it's free also. If I find it, uh, we'll put that in there so you guys can read through it if you'd like, which I highly recommend. Actually, I read through that way back in 2010, way before my awakening. I was really? on before. I was on Before It's News, that, that website, Before It's News. Yeah. And that's when I first read the Admiral Bird diary. And that's what like blew my mind open to Hollow Earth. I was like, oh my God, it felt so true even back like, then. What is this? Yeah. yeah. I remember 
I remember like saving it and then sending it to my sister. I'm like, you have to read this. Like, I was so excited <laughs> about it. And that was way before your awakening, too. Yeah, wow. it was 2010. Yeah. Before my awakening, even. Yeah. Oh, well, I was still interested. And in, that's when I was starting to get into everything. Well, yeah, um, you said you were kind of into UFOs, you and your dad kind of your whole life. I'm sorry. It was 2011 whenever I found yeah. that. 2011. Still. Yeah. Yeah. You said um, you kind of had a somewhat of an interest in like UFOs. Well, it, that all happened. It was right after my mom passed away. So that's mm. when everything kind of like, I didn't really have my awakening, but that's where things started to change for me. So. Right. Right. Okay. And then this. You had one level, you had one level of an awakening when you were getting attacked. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So these, then this next part comes from the book from Diana Robbins, Messages from the Hollow Earth. And Aaron, you have these books, right? I have, this is one book. It's just two different covers of the same book. Yeah, this book is amazing. I highly, highly recommend you guys get this book and read it. It's it's pure disclosure of hollow earth, of just how it is down there and how they live and uh, the nature of reality also and things that we should know. Right. So uh, some of this stuff will might might seem like we're repeating ourselves, but it's it's worth it. So, Aaron, if you want to read this part, and I'll read the next page if you want. Sure. Adama talks about the inner earth beings who live in the hollow earth. So this is Adama talking. We have easy access into the inner earth world through our tunnel system, which goes directly through the earth's mantle and into the inner earth entryways, where we are greeted by our brothers and sisters upon arrival. We are always going and coming since we keep up a steady trade relation with them. We enjoy their beaches and oceans and climb their mountains. There's a gloriously beautiful realm of light and purity and truly invigorating to be there. Know that the spiritual state of the inner earth beings is very evolved compared to the surface dwellers. These beings came from another solar system to populate the inner earth. They never lived on the surface. Their home on this planet has always been in the inner recesses of earth. They are, however, in contact with beings on the surface, just as you are in contact with the Dhamma and the mantle. You on the surface are the direct descendants of roving bands of ETs who created you to mine the Earth's resources. These creator ETs don't reside on Earth at this time. However, you all have the same spiritual potential as inner Earth beings. Your life on the surface in no way mirrors life in the inner Earth. The only things on the surface that mirror life inwardly are the mountains and oceans and plains. These inner earth beings have your surface conditions fully monitored. They know all that transpires on earth, just as we in the mantle know all through our computer network. The great inner earth beings know of your yearnings to live in the inner earth, where all is in a peaceful, harmonious state. They do consider surface folk their brothers and sisters who have not as yet evolved enough to reside with them in the land of plenty. However, when you do reach a higher spiritual state, then you too can live internally within earth. As you scan our landscape, you will see the openings of the holes at the poles. These openings are wide enough for some motherships to enter. You can see the spaceport spread out for hundreds of miles in a circle, interspread with flowers, grasses, bushes, trees, waterfalls. It does not look like your barren concrete airports devoid of life, but rather like a garden with space shuttles and starships nestled peacefully inside our world. We hardly know when they come and go as they do not emit any harsh sounds and we hardly detect any sound when they land or take off. They are in complete harmony with our love vibration and move in silence. We can visually see their movements as they gracefully fly in and out through the poles. Our library is a multi-dimensional portal and way station for travelers around the galaxy. 
Beings come here from all dimensions and universes to witness the wonders of creation that unfold when they step into the vast portals that transport them into realms beyond their imagination. There are portals leading to all star systems in our Milky Way galaxy, just waiting for you to explore. Inner Earth portals and space travel. Our galaxy operates as one huge whole system totally interconnected through an interstellar communication web. Through our portals located at the library of Portholagos, we can contact anyone or travel anywhere in the universe, in our universe and beyond. We can easily come and go through the openings at the poles. Our spaceport is located inside the hollow earth in direct alignment with the openings at the north and south poles. We are not stuck on the earth as you are, but can leave whenever we desire. We are not limited in movement and can travel throughout the universe at will. There are no physical constraints for we apply the universal laws of energy and use the already existing highways throughout the universe. We can't get lost for all is mapped out and all is in constant communication with all in existence. We just tap into this live network that is always broadcasting and move through it effortlessly, which is beautiful. The hollow earth is a paradise with tall, graceful mountains just jutting into the sky and large, clear, clean lakes and oceans that abound with life. The diet in the hollow earth is strictly vegetarian and people are healthy, robust, and strong. They too have isolated themselves from the surface population, although they come and leave the earth freely using the spacecraft that are kept there in the spaceport and the inside of the earth. So although they're inside the earth, they have freedom and health and abundance and peace, all of the necessary components of life that you on the surface have been crying out for. There is free travel between the subterranean cities and the hollow earth through the tunnels using our electromagnetic trains that can take us from one part of the earth to another in a fraction of the time it takes you on the surface. Our transportation is quick and efficient and burns no fuels. Therefore, there's no pollution underground. We long for the day when you on the surface can travel freely to hollow earth, where you'll be greeted with great joy and love. It is this return to the land of Eden that you are all crying out for. We too await this day as all of us in the subterranean cities will join with you in the celebration, merging all our civilizations into one. And there you go. She says the land of Eden, which corroborates yep. Olaf Janssen's Garden of Eden. Yep. And this this just kind of summarizes, this talks about the tunnel network. There are tunnels intertwining throughout the planet, connecting every large city and state. The inner earth inhabitants can reach most of their destination within hours, if not minutes. This underground network of passageways has been used for eons. They are more connected below than we are above. They can travel anywhere freely without making reservations, paying large sums of money, or spending days at airports, train stations, or in cars. Would be beautiful. Sounds pretty Because I'm over the airports. So this is a clip from Daniel Sala from the interview we did with him. And then we'll get into the, the last half of this webinar. And they're mostly made of hyperboreans overwhelmingly, which according to Chinamar's books were on earth about 50,000 years ago. And they made, so all these peoples like the Atlanteans and hyperboreans underwent a change they basically can't remain couldn't remain on the surface because the surface more and more went into the into the frequencies of 3d and it used to be much more interchangeable before and there were even wars fought over the less remaining portals as they got as the rift as the chasm got smaller and smaller 
but yeah, and apparently many of these peoples either went elsewhere or they departed or they, you know, absconded inside the earth and where they could continue because this is important to mention that as you go inside, certainly past the mental, you are fully in the etheric realm, which is also known as 4D, but you also already feel the mark gradually as you go deeper. So by the time you're near the end, you're, you have much more elevated, you know, states and feelings when you're inside. But, and yeah, the other thing, other than the Hyperboreans, the, apparently there are also four Lemurian outposts inside Earth and two Atlanteans. So not very many, but apparently there are Atlanteans inside Hollow Earth as well. So a few things to note. He mentions that there was a war over the re last remaining portals of inner Earth, which I found very fascinating, uh, which would make sense why maybe even certain wars are fought today. Uh, we've heard that they're fought over stargates, but why can't that stargate also be a portal to inner Earth? And right. secondly, he mentions the density changes. You, you're essentially traveling into another dimension when you go into inner Earth, which which is corroborates with a lot of other people and he had talked about the lumerian and atlantean outposts still existing and this next part is from this book that isn't out yet um uh, tech um the i can't share the whole book but i can talk about some of it but my friend nikki she's friends with the author of this book and um, between 19 i'll just read quickly the description a tale by serata about the conquest of manoa atlantean city experience lived by the relentless explorer in seven fantastic voyages to the center of the labyrinths over 13 years 1971 to 1984 absolutely incredible book profound information there's only one english version but it's not out for release yet because the publishers are worrying over something silly but i have read this book because nikki is friends with the author the guy who actually was brought into this Atlantean city and and came back to write about it. And it's profound. So it's out in Spanish currently. It's out in but Spanish. Not, but yeah. not English yet. I think, exactly. So then this is just some information from the book. I asked the lady, what's your name and who are you? She responds, my name is hidden to you. You shall learn it when necessary. So just to give you some perspective here, this is on his first expedition in the middle of the night, he's visited by this woman from the Atlantean city. At the time, he doesn't know that. And this is what she tells him. My name is hidden to you. You shall learn it when necessary, when a necessary time has elapsed. But you can call me what you like. He goes, I will call you Consuelo. She says, agreed, you will call me Consuelo. I'll inform you that I am an inhabitant of Manoa and am in charge of this region. I know why you come here. I can read your mind. Your objective remains far. It's not easy. It's not as easy as you think. If you prepare, you might one day know of my city, its inhabitants, and its mysteries. What should I do? I ask her. Consuelo says, come with me. We shall climb that mountain near us while I tell you what your preparations consist of. Consuelo walks ahead. I follow her, and a strange energy can be perceived. We climb the mountain without effort, and while ascending, Consuelo talks to me in perfect Spanish. Prepare for great things. Now, I include this part because anyone who wants to enter inner earth or at least communicate with beings, I think this is a great protocol to follow. 
And what's interesting is the, they talk about not eating meat as well. And the time when I had the inner earth being phased into my basement was the time, was the year that I decided to stop eating meat. Whether or not there's a correlation there, um, maybe it's not a coincidence. I don't know. Preparing for the journey. Begin with your body. It's the most important physical piece that we possess. It's what you should take care of the most, much more than your photography equipment that you have lost. You should learn to breathe correctly. In breath, there is life. Prana. Breathe fully and completely. Take in air slowly, always through the nose. Fill the lungs completely from the brain to the organs of creation. Hold it briefly, then exhale slowly through the nose. Do this many times a day until it becomes a permanent habit. This technique is called Tamran. You should assimilate prana by means of correct respiration. Two, become an alchemist. Our energy should be transmuted. Semen must be cerebralized and the cerebral semenized through the transmutation of the Christic energies. Three, your food should be clean and natural. Eat as much raw food as possible. Avoid meats. Never in ingest industrialized food. Much less shall you eat pork. This last one you should never eat. So they say avoid pork, avoid pork at all costs. Four, purify your body. Bathe in the seven rivers of pure water and anoint it with oils, essences of plants, and flowers of the region. You shall bring offerings to the sacred lakes that lie in the land of the Valley of the Sun, especially on the solstices and equinoxes. You shall be uh, reverent with the God Sun to receive its energy. Work intensely until you become Madohim. Your thoughts, or better yet, your imagination, should be exact and precise. Do meditation by concentrating on your heart. Awaken your conscience. Manoa exists in a higher dimension. That's why it's not always visible. But when you are able to see her, you will be astounded forever. This has happened to those who have had the privilege of perceiving her. Consuelo signals to a glen that's visible below and says, In that glen are two doors that are entries to my city. One where guests of honor enter and are able to leave again, and the other where others enter and never again return. Manoa possesses the memory of Gaia, memory of the Mother Earth, Akashic records of nature. It conserves the history, science, and wisdom of all races that have existed on Earth. All of this can be accessed and recorded in the mind of those who deserve it. Consuelo instructs me in exercises for the body and teaches me about spirituality. She teaches me breathing techniques, indicates which foods to eat and which I should never ingest, and warns me, surround yourself always with beings of pure ideals. <clears throat> During this time, I decided to venture forth alone, discreetly to the labyrinths of mountains in search of the enchanted city that, according to the histories, at any moment can emerge from the mountains and become visible in the third dimension, transforming in a sudden the mountains into that beautiful city of pyramidal buildings with domes coated in gold illuminated with magnificent lanterns and inhabited by a race of giants that possess the memory of all races that have existed on Earth and gifted with extraordinary ships to journey through the universe at velocities greater than the speed of light. So this is just, I just found that interesting just to give you, to help paint a picture of this city. <clears throat> and it's getting hard to read after over two hours. So when he gets inside, when he finally, on his seventh expedition, when he finally finds the portal and is and granted access, when he's brought in, he sees a green sphinx immediately, pterodactyls, visible wind like waves of light. He said the wind was visible. It was colorful. 
golden domes and mountains. The mountains were that were the mountains in the 3D were actually golden in this dimension. Uh, he said spaceships. The spaceships uh, mimicked natural wildlife like grasshoppers and and other flying birds and stuff. Biological robots and transparent lakes. I rest on a soft hammock caressed by the breeze. And after this meditation, my hostess amicably invites me to continue the tour. I tell my madam that I'm a bit confused and need to clear some doubts. Consuelo very gently clears, clears my head saying, Serata, you are in a divine dimension in the Atlantean city of Manoa inhabited by the Atlanteans. Here, everything is less dense and there exists less laws. This is a superior dimension to the dimension where you live. That's why life is pleasant and time passes differently, and you are here completely. I perceive the verbal illustrations of Consuelo with my senses in perfect form. They've helped me hold consciousness to the fact that I'm here with my physical body and all the other bodies. I'm complete. It's not a dream, a mental projection, or an astral body flight. Now my senses are conscious of the dimension in which I find myself. Consuelo, woman of awakened consciousness, understands everything. She possesses special senses that are very sensitive. Her mind is always in harmony with the cosmos. She has understood that I've dissipated my doubts and invites me to continue the tour through the beautiful city. Okay, there's a lot here, but this is so fascinating to me. <clears throat> and no one, this book isn't available anywhere. So I want to share some of this with you. The communication with Consuelo is telepathic almost the entire time, but she also speaks the tongue of her race, the language of Mu. Primitive tongues and a universal language that can be perceived with the silent mind. Magic and science are lived here in every instant. The aerial crafts, terrestrial, and all types of machinery are robotic alive. They possess proper autonomy. The robots have no life. The robots have life, not with batteries or some type of electricity. They possess an intelligent spirit. The aerial crafts are fantastic of different models and sizes to travel through space and other planets and galaxies in the spiral of time, utilizing the coordinates of different dimensions. These are perfect crafts that don't use fuel. Their sound is almost imperceptible. They have their home, an extensive hangar, a home with all the comforts for those types of sprites. There exist nurse crafts that can have an area of several thousands of meters and crafts of gold on which travel some deities. There are special collections of crafts of the Lumeria and of different races that have existed. How did they create these crafts, he asked. Once the scientific magicians create the physical part of the robot craft with biological materials with high perfection, science and magic introduce into it the spirit. This should be related to the physical part of the craft and the mission it will accomplish. In this way, the robot functions like an intelligent human. It obeys, follows orders from its superiors with perfection, effectiveness, and loyalty. In addition, it possesses the faculty of reading thoughts. The communication with the superiors is verbal or telepathic. Something very important in this dimension, there is no waste produced. The residents are of elevated ecological principle the industrial processes are done without causing harm to nature. The energetic fountains are of solar energy. This I found really fascinating. And it's an answer to the flat earthers why they can't break through the firmament. Um, the only ships that can pass through the membrane of Mother Earth without affecting her are the special living and clean ships 
that travel through time to any place in the universe in an instant past or future constructed by awakened masters. They are very fast ships that travel at the speed of light. Can it be that one day our race will create ships with these characteristics? For man to conquer the cosmos, first, he must be humble enough to conquer and discover himself. So I just found it interesting. They said the only the only ships that can pass through the membrane of Mother Earth, I, I'm assuming that would be the firmament, which in this book, they describe that as the aura. They describe the Earth as a living body and the atmosphere is the, the firmament, as we call it, is just the aura. And that's why in uh, alternative one, we were trying to blow holes in the atmosphere so we can so they could find a way out. And apparently they did, um, which is damaging to the body. And, and this is just a brief description of the inside of the planet. You can read this if you want, Aaron. In the interior of the blue sphere, we can observe beautiful luminous cities of crystal in which inhabit beings of light. They are remnants, our primitive ancestral gods. In America of the South, the mountain range of the Andes. In North America, Mount Shasta and the Himalayas. And in Japan, Mount Fuji. Subterranean luminous walkways interconnect these places. In the interior of the blue sphere. So this book also gives a description of the planet Earth. And, and no, it, it talks about it being a sphere, why it's a sphere. I mean, everything, like, it, it just feels right. It resonates. Uh, I just realized just, in America, the South is supposed to be South America, but I think the translation to English right. makes it weird like that. <laughs> it's supposed to be South America. Either That's way. What I was like, what is it trying to say? Right. Either South way, America, but, the mountain range of the Andes. Sorry. Either way, this is another account of beautiful luminous cities of crystal in which inhabits beings of uh, light inside the planet, inside the blue sphere. Right. And this, I included this because this corroborates Jock Doubleday's theory that the earth and the mountains and the rivers and the lake beds were all terraformed, intelligently designed, not naturally created. So this is when she's telling him about the Lumerian civilization. For the man of Mu, the planet was splendid, a paradise, the home of that race of giants, although smaller than the Hyperboreos, the man of Mu was semi-physical, semi-etheric. He had the faculty of passing easily to other dimensions. The intelligence and wisdom was manifested in them fully in, in the space of the physical dimension and the astral of the universe. The gods of Lumeria were the organizers of the physical part of Earth. They gave form to the mountains, valleys, and plains. They ordered the great ocean or great lake or rivers, the physical structure of the Earth. They created with their imagination and ordered the sprites of nature. The physical terrestrial design is Lumerian. Jock Doubleday is out there screaming into the wind that all these things were designed and, and terraformed and engineered. And if this is true, this proves exactly what he's saying. Well, it corroborates uh, what he's saying. It corroborates it, at least. Here began the fascination and the fall of gods. They marveled at this physical world of paradise from which almost no one escapes. Okay. Moving on to the last part. Uh, real quick. Yeah. Katie Rains is saying, please tag this book in the description. Um, we can't. I'm not allowed can't. to I'm not allowed to <laughs> share this book. It's not published yet. It's not published yet, and we're not supposed to be sharing it yet. So this like 
it's only being shared here privately on the Patreon and that's it. And that's just, the most we can do. Yeah. Sorry guys. Just a few pages. Um, it's, I can't wait for it to be out. It's profound in my opinion. Yeah, me too. <clears throat> um, so this is, um, the area 51 whistleblower from part one talking about dimensions. And then we're going to get into the flat earth psyop a little bit, and then we're going to bring it home with a video from Billy Woodard and then that's it. So just stick around for a few more minutes. As I've said, and let me make this clear, the presence of alien beings and the technology does exist. Uh, it, it is real as you or me, and, and it's a whole lot more out there than even the most diehard believers could, could possibly fathom. The, the truth is that we, and by we I mean this planet and the people of this planet, are in essence blind to what is really going on in the cosmos and interstellar space. What people call aliens, uh, we call IBs, or, or in layman's terms, interdimensional beings. And what we found out and have known about since the early 70s is that, in simplest terms, other dimensions or planes, as we call them, exist and lay on top of each other, almost stacked, as if you had a blanket with another blanket stacked on top of it, and another blanket stacked on top of it. To explain it so you can understand, you can imagine the Earth and our reality as a thin blanket, and all of these other higher dimensions are the blankets laying directly on top of ours. However, we can only see our own blanket. Now the alien beings, or the ships that we have seen in videos and that many people have, have captured over the years are in fact what we call jumpers in that they exist in their relative dimensions but have in fact jumped into ours. Uh, we have discovered that most of the time we are unable to see them as they are at a wavelength uh, indifferent to our own and our senses, eyes and ears cannot detect. Um, from the information that I have gathered and been briefed on, every planet, star, and galaxy within our own plane and universe, as we see it, exists also in these other dimensions. Uh, we've detected that we know of and that I've been briefed on at least four other dimensions that do exist. Now, as I said, Every planet we know of, every galaxy, does exist in these other dimensions. However, with each new dimension, each planet, galaxy, star takes on a different form. Uh, to explain it in the most simple, simplest terms, you can look at our own planet, Jupiter, which is in the outer reaches of our solar system. Now, to us, it, it's a deadly gaseous planet completely uninhabitable. However, when you look at Jupiter in an elevated dimension, you will see that it is completely changed in all forms. You will see that it's no longer a deadly ball of gas, but is now solid, has a different color, and is now inhabited. We know for a fact this is true due to the fact that the government has the technology to detect these higher dimensions and actually 
get a small view of what the solar system looks like on the other side, as we call it, in these other dimensions. There is much we do not know about the universe and how it works. However, here are the facts that I can confirm as truth and were made known to me and that I and the other people that I worked with have been briefed on. Now, we are not alone in the universe. Uh, there are alien beings within our own dimension of space as well as other dimensions. The planet Earth is an early stage, I guess you could say, training ground, if you will, where by which we as beings will live until we advance to the higher dimensions. Now, we are not the bottom of the food chain, and, and we have discovered that there are at least two dimensions below our own plane. Uh, but that, that is as far as I will go regarding that. Okay, so a few things to note. For one, uh, Christy, that is not Dan Burris. This is an anonymous whistleblower that came out in 2008. And it's only like a 12-minute video in its entirety. And I think I linked it in the description. Yeah, it's in the description as the number one link. He does um, kind of sound like Dan Burris, though, so I can understand them. Right. But care. apparently, I mean, maybe it is. But it's, Maybe it is. Who knows? It's an anonymous whistleblower. But he talks about the other dimensions. And, and he said, imagine them as flat blankets, right? And then he said that there's also, he said in each dimension, the planets take on different forms. Um, so it'd be gas giant here, but in another dimension, it's a solid planet inhabited with life. And then he also said there's two dimensions below ours. This is important to take note of. Uh, this is, you know, a lot of the flat earthers, some of them are understanding that reality isn't what we've been taught. And they they see these dimensions as flat blankets like that, but they're they're seeing it as a flat physical plane. That's just a representation of how you can visualize it. That doesn't mean it's a flat planet. Actually um, flat, right? Yeah, but it's important to take note of that. And then, secondly, that they planets can appear in different forms in other dimensions. And two and three, there are lower dimensions below the third dimension. So. The flat earth psyop keeps you trapped. So this is important to understand. What better way, what better way to make people feel helpless than by push a theory that this visual, this image right here perfectly gives you a visual of how they want you to feel trapped inside of a snow in inside of a snow globe. They want you to think you're trapped in a in basically like a prison, right? Like a snow globe. Exactly. And so here we go. We're going to get into the, into the dimensions. So is the Earth flat in the second dimension? This is a question we have to ask ourselves. Uh, on the left here is a TikTok video, which I won't play, but uh, flat Earth is a PSYOP. This video will probably lose me followers. Flat Earth is a CIA PSYOP. Flat Earth theory allows them to go back to sleep. Bingo. Read that again. Flat Earth theory allows them to go back to sleep. Let's look at a video game for an, as an example. In a 2D side-scrolling video game, that moon that you're looking at right there is a flat disc. In, in the second dimension, in a 2D video game, it's a flat disc. As the evolution of technology, as technology evolves, by nature, that flat disc now becomes a 3D navigatable sphere. 
So we're looking at the second dimension. Now we're looking at the third dimension, which is where we, we reside. 4D and beyond, you can get into the holographic universe. So we're looking at quantum holographic universe and all of the, those theories that we hear as well. Now, why this is important is because what better way to counter the ascension than pushing a narrative that tricks people into believing that the earth is flat? By doing so, maybe they're tricking people into devolving and descending into the second dimension where maybe the earth is flat for all we know, and maybe they're not wrong. But what it is, is a lower state of consciousness. So now they're even further away from ascending into the fifth dimension. It's a lower frequency. And the problem with the second dimension, look at a video game. There's limited possibilities in a 2D reality. There's restrictions. So in this video game that they're creating here, they, it was probably very frustrating trying to create that helicopter and that moon and everything 3D but you have this flat plane to do it on and you're very limited to what you can do. The maneuverability sucks, the controls suck. Just translate that into the 2D reality where they want the flat earthers residing. It becomes very restricted. It becomes very hard to create. Um, imagination kind of goes out the window because they're just believing what they're told. They can't, they would have to ignore every slide in this webinar in order for the earth to be flat. So what a perfect way to counter the ascension than to promote on every platform, especially TikTok, number one trending every day, flat earth. They get as, ma as many people as they can to buy into a flat earth. They are, they, those people are now existing in the second dimension in a lower reality where if we go by the Area 51 whistleblower, the planet looks different, takes on different forms in every dimension. So let's just pretend in the second dimension, they are living in some sort of lower dense reality where maybe it is flat. I mean, I'm not, I don't know if that's the case, but we have to consider this and what a perfect way to keep those people asleep and put them back to sleep. And if you notice, when you try to, when you try to debate a flat earther, they immediately result to name calling, finger pointing, belittling, condescending, arrogance, all yeah. lower frequency qualities and, and behaviors. Well well, it's a religion. It's a religion, full stop. And what does is, what is any dogmatic belief system do? It shuts you down. You think you have the ultimate truth. You will shut yourself off to any other possibility being a possibility. So your truth, your journey to truth has ended once you subscribe to a dogmatic belief system, which is what the flatter belief system is. It's basically a religion. You think you've already got it figured out. You think space is fake, so there can't be other planets. There can't be the only other life has to be on this one plane somehow out there like that. And then you're and then you're so focused on like getting out linearly on this plane, which is not how it works. And it, and it keeps you fighting over what information is. No, my information is correct. No, that's and it's so it's a distraction too. It's a distraction keeps us divided and arguing over information rather than growing spiritually and going inward doing the inner work which is what is ultimately all about anyway uh yeah it's it's just it's so obvious to me that it's a psyop that it's it, but that's how the best psyops work you know they that's they they know what a lot of people are going to buy into and that's how they know what to spread and what to focus on um 
really pushing and, to, and especially in the awakening community, because that's a huge threat to the system because if people keep becoming awake, it's game over. Right. So they got to throw these things like flat earth in there to really throw a huge wrench in the works with the awakening. And, and what people need to understand is they're not just pushing a flat earth theory. They're putting out information to support it. So they're putting out misinformation intentionally. So right. people are coming across maps and old books and all this stuff that seem to support it. But that's how these psyops work. They're not just putting out words. They're, they need the information to validate it. It's they fake. Need, it's fake information. They, yeah. they go, oh, look, here's the proof. But it's it's not proof. But it's easy to it's easy to fake proof for anything. Anything I, I want yeah. to believe, I could find seemingly proof. And that's what confirmation bias is. So it's a bunch of confirmation bias. You cherry pick things that look like it's proof. But when you really look into it, it's not at all. And yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah. So there you go. Exactly. And I, th I just felt it was important to end on that because if a flat earther does come across this webinar, which is highly unlikely, but if they do <laughs> and they give it the time of day, maybe this will help them open their mind to new possibilities. And we're going to close uh, with this video of Billy Woodard talking about being brought into the hollow earth, uh, which I find very fascinating. We were, we were, by that time, I'm, I'm totally lost. I don't know where we are. And they said, do you see the glow ahead of us? And I said, yes, I do. What is that? And they said, that's the entrance to hollow earth. Hmm. I said, hollow earth? I said, wait a minute. We're taught in school that the earth is solid and it has a molten core and all this. And now you're telling me it's hollow? And they said, yes, it is hollow. And they said, what you learn is, is a shame because it's, it's all a lie. And I said, okay. Uh, how long are we going to be gone on this trip? And he says, you're going to be gone for six Earth months. I see the light ahead, and we got closer and closer to it. And as we started to curve into it, I said, that's a hole. And they said, yes, that's a hole. And uh, so we went on, went into the hole. Uh, we landed at a at a, a city um, inside, and uh, they said, "Do you know where you are?" And I said, "No." Uh, I'm, I'm presuming inside Hollow Earth, and they said, "Yes, you are." Tell me about the city. The city was not like a city on the surface. The cities on the surface are skyscrapers, you know, big tall buildings and all this. And the inside, they're, they're, all the buildings are round. They don't have roofs on them, but they're round. And uh, they're built in and around Mother Nature. They're not, uh, you don't see any highways or uh, sidewalks or anything like this. It's all struck, round structures in and around nature. With no roofs. With no roofs. What were they made of? It looked like a marble type substance, but yet it could, I don't think it was marble. I think it was more like crystal. So smooth? It's very smooth. Reflective? Very reflective. Okay. And uh, we, we landed and of course I started walking around. And uh, I met several different beings, people, and uh, some of them uh, announced that they were from the surface. Well, you mentioned the light going. Yes. Did you look up once you landed? 
Yes, and I saw a sun that never moved. What color was it? It was more uh, between an orange and a yellow. Could you feel a heat coming from it? Uh, a heat, yeah, more like a more a soft heat. It wasn't harsh at all. It wasn't bright either. It was uh, very easy on the eyes. As you look at, as you look outward, you see the the horizon rise like this instead of straight across. You see, actually, see it curve a curve upward. Are there clouds? No, no clouds. Where does the water come from? Does it rain? It mists in the from the sky, but it is not like a harsh rain like it is here. The clouds, um, the clouds up here are very thick. And, um, and in essence, where they have, do they have? Sometimes they have a, a cloud once in a while in the in the sky, but it's more of a very uh, like a translucent looking through it. Very very. Um, not dense at all, very light, and, and and the atmosphere was so exuberating, um, so refreshing, and pure. It was like it was breathing air that just had no uh, smell or taste or anything like like it does up here. Up here, around cities, you just you, you breathe the air and you, you you breathe that smog and stuff. Nothing like that there, at all. No, it just the purest smell, uh, purest um, energy. When you when you breathe it, you're just energized totally. Okay, so you met some people. Yes, I did. Someone from the surface. I met one individual. It was a female. Uh, she was. Um, Rather tall, but um, and I looked at her and I, her, her face looked familiar, and I told her, "You look familiar," and she said, uh, "I should be familiar. I'm Amelia Earhart." Boom. The end. Um, Amelia Earhart. Amelia Earhart. Disappeared. They don't know what happened to her. Yeah, she disappeared. Apparently, but he goes on to say there's a, there's more people that have moved to the inner earth that that have disappeared on the surface, but they're alive and well inside mm -hmm. the planet. And he even described her a little taller. So he said that once you enter that realm, essentially, you immediately become lighter and you immediately start getting taller because everything's less dense. Um, and eventually you like you get as tall as you're going to get. But um, just by the nature of the atmosphere there, you will start getting taller. And uh, there's no reason to believe that many people that have disappeared on the surface aren't now there. Yeah. And um, like, like I said, those interviews are linked below in the description. And then to take it home, this is a new photograph of the Earth from the Space Force's Victus Knox satellite launch on September 14, 2023. And what do you know? It's not flat. <laughs> the end. It must be fake. Right. Could it be a fake photo fake. for all we know. Right. Okay. So. Granted, it still could be a fake photo that doesn't, still doesn't prove. Exactly. Maybe. Exactly. But what I found it interesting was it wasn't some, it wasn't released online. Like, oh, look, new photo of the earth. It was hidden in an article about the satellite launch. It was just like hidden right. in there. 
and no one you didn't see this going around online or anything like i just pulled this out of the article and they just like snuck it in there you know right which leads me to believe that it's that it actually is real it could be and and i don't know anything could be faked so whatever use your real and they and they real and they airbrushed out anything they didn't right and use your gut use your gut what is it what do you think about this photo could be fake we're not saying that it's real um but thank you guys so much um i hope you enjoy this we're thank here you guys so much two hours you. and 45 minutes wow that's uh <laughs> yeah it's, it's been a journey thank you all for being here um we really appreciate it we appreciate your support and thank you guys for being supportive patreons yes. loyal patreons and um, we love you all. And uh, do you have anything else to say before we wrap this up? Uh, no, I hope you guys enjoyed this webinar. Um, thank you so much for supporting us. We couldn't do this without you and that support. So we, we truly, truly appreciate it. And we love you all so much. And um, yeah, we hope yeah. you enjoyed it. Yeah. And, and tell your friends if you guys found this beneficial at all, and you want to share it with people, please uh, let them know about our Patreon and our webinars. Eventually, we will make these public. Um, the next one we'll make public uh, at some point will be the part one of this uh, webinar. And then uh, this one will be obviously down the line after that. But uh, just stay tuned for more. And again, good night, guys. We love you all and have a great evening. Good night, guys. I'll let you film. Hold it. Okay. All right. So we are in Rock City, another underground cave that I found that you can drive into. This one is way shadier than the last one I was in. There's a lot more warning signs as well. I'm not sure which road to go here, where we came from. Now it's telling us we can only go one way. Yeah, this is... What are those machines? This is way bigger than the last yeah, one. Yeah, it is. This one has like different roads. Like, there's mm -hmm. not just one way to go. No, it's not like one simple loop. Pavement ends. Look at that. It's like a cave. Yeah, that is a cave. We're in a cave, but cave in a cave. I can't believe we're in here right now. <laughs> this like goes forever. Well, there's other, yeah, like I don't know how far it goes in all these directions. There's an eerie laser beam light. This is totally bananas. See. Look at that to the right. You can't 
the hell? You can't tell anything in the video. Yeah, but it does go. Far down there. What the fuck? I'm gonna turn around before I get yeah. lost. And then this is how we die. We right. just starve to death. Stop that video now.